Are you tired of the same dull dessert every evening? Are you done with cakes and pies with the flat one-note flavors? Forget about it. Are you looking to be the gab of the gala at your next potluck? Try just throwing a bunch of random shit into some fruit-flavored gelatin. Carrots, cottage cheese, nuts, all those wholesome goodies and more. And don't just take my word. All you gotta do, okay, is fill your ring-shaped cake pan with your favorite brand of lime gelatin. Pull out the cans of cherries, pears, marshmallows, and cream cheese, and whatever else delights. Mix it up, you got seafoam salad. Your friends will say, Ah, forget about it. What a green color. Or perhaps the protester inside you aches to make a statement on the plate. Showcase your broad sense of tact and taste with a refreshing Watergate salad. Just combine canned pineapple, whipped topping, crushed pecans, and marshmallows in a bowl and forget about it. Let your friends wonder how well they ever knew you before. When you combine delicious fruits, creamy cheese, and whatever else you plan in your pantry with some healthful gelatin and let it sit in your coffee cake pan, you'll create a savory dish that's guaranteed to make everyone stop and say, Hey, why hasn't anyone done this before? Put away the Alamo and kick fatty desserts to the curb. Break the mold by embracing the mold. Not in any way paid for by the Association of Americans for the Eating of Aspic. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works in context of Thomas Pinchot. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts. My name is Cody. And I'm Will. We are still going to be down a member for a little bit here in the future, but we should have all four of us together back sometime soon. Um, This week we're going to be going over chapters 7 and 8 of Vineland. Will, do you have a summary for us? Believe it or not, I do. Oh, that's very exciting. All right, so starting with Chapter 7. Shortly in advance of the arrival of the Vomitones, uh, sorry, uh, Gino Baviona and the Paisans, we meet Ralph Oivon. His treasured estate upholstered in Mediterranean vegetation and get some insight on its relationship to his daughter, Gelsomina, the lucky bride of the occasion, and Ralph Jr. and his business. He had spared no expense in providing his baby girl the wedding she was due. With hundreds of guests drinking dozens of excellent wine options, he'd even tried to book the San Francisco Symphony Orchestra until it was clear they would not be flying back from whatever foreign land was so much more important than what should be the most exciting day of Jessamina Levon's life. Unconcerned as always, the uncertainty of hiring a new band still attempts to weigh on him. The Paisans finally arrive at midday, and Gino narrowly avoids being spotted as an imposter by virtue of his generally confused nature, despite his complete lack of experience with the culture of the Italian peninsula. After two-ton Carmine makes it clear to bring out some of the more traditional tunes, 
the older members of the audience, tiring of their film soundtrack focus thus far, he seizes Gino to drive the point home. In the struggle, his black slicked back hair wig is unseated, revealing him for the fraudulent Billy Barf he really was. Fortunately, after finding out that none of them are even Catholic, Carmine's wrath is easily soothed by some fast talk from Isaiah 2-4, focusing on the ungrooviness of literal overkill. With help from Ralph Sr.'s copy of the Italian wedding fake book, brought so magnanimously to Billy by Gelsomina herself, the Vomitones put on a convivial enough show. Continuing his run of poor luck, though, the bride's rush to the band's van did plant some seeds of vengeance in the extended family. The front man himself is terrified until they wheel out later that evening. Prairie, meanwhile, has been fussing over her hairstyle in a powder room, exercising her long-honed practice of erasing her father's face from her own, attempting by this subtraction to reveal Fernese's. Seemingly from out of nowhere, from deep in her thoughts, Prairie notices the appearance of a woman in a green dress behind her. Ready for trouble, she breaks the silence. The warrior-like figure establishes her knowledge of the business card in the younger's purse, identifies herself as Daryl Louise Chastain, pa partner of Mr. Fumimoto. In only a moment, they both realize they've seen each other some way, somehow. That way is Frenesi, DL's reliable friend in the good old days, whose face apparently shone through prairies for her to see. They catch up, or rather compare notes. Bond is of rather urgent pertinence, it turns out. Via... D.L. had thought he'd have given up on Fernese by now, and Prairie had been innocent to the nature of relationship between the two. This moment of connection is interrupted, and Ralph Wavone Sr. gropes D.L., only to take a subsequent tumble over the deck and into the buffet. He shambles back to make his version of amends, and D.L. spooks him with the subject of conversation. The stakes are clearly high. She invites Prairie to join her in the mountains, to consult with Takeshi, and to take the heat off her crew. Prairie takes the offer. Before they leave, D.L. stuns the crowd with a crooning ballad of the love between a girl and her gun, leaving them wanting more, and they flee in her custom jet-black 84 Trans Am. En route, D.L. unveils the, jet, the destination and shares its backstory with her passenger, the mountainside cloister of the Sisterhood of Kunoichi Attentives, a New Age order centered on feminist liberation via ninjutsu, had been through many forms on its way to 1984. From the first gate's guard, it's clear to Prairie that her escort is not entirely welcome here, certainly not with herself in tow. Regardless, she impresses the senior attentive with her strong will and basic culinary capacity, and gets the offer of room and board as long as she keeps the others out of the kitchen. For far too long, their lives have been run by a procession of crimes and atonements in food form, and a decent meal at this point may as well be a miracle. Quickly finding her footing as the head chef, Prairie soon has the various cook staff working together on some relatively sane dishes, like spinach casserole with cheese and grape production glazed rotisserie bologna for the omnivores. Later, she learns that this is not a place for woo-woo transcendence, but for the hard work of the craft of the ninja. Invisibility is on the table. If only the novitiates take the time and care to memorize their surroundings and practice convincing their bodies to conform superficially. Impressed by Prairie's self-possession, Sister Rochelle offers her access to Fernese's book-thick file in the Kunuichi archives. Provided her dinner goes over well, and she scrubs every pot and pan herself first. She does, and it does. The archives, it turns out, have been digitized, and the pictures of her mother and D.L. hypnotize Prairie until she realizes the time and heads to bed. As she sleeps, we learn of the real history behind the photos. 
Diel had been roaming, harassing biker gangs, when near Berkeley she ran into Fernese filming the police, who were themselves attempting to break up protests. Suddenly finding herself midway between the fascists and the communists, she silently wished for a superman. Diel was that hero, slinging her and the camera onto the back of her bike and speeding off into the night. They connected over the revolutionary fervor, though each had distinct motives for participation. Neither very rooted in theoretical analysis. D.L. prefers the kicking ass to reading, and Frenesi the rush of it all, but they can agree on their mutual alignment. We meet D.L.'s parents, Norlene and Moody, by proxy. Moody was a military policeman, and a small man, who compensated for his individual powerlessness with force and rage, taking the stress of each day out on his wife. From a young age, D.L. could tell he feared her somehow, but could not understand her mother's imagined self-sacrifice. Norlene would much later explain her lack of options and the comfort she felt from her faith in Christ. Eventually, D.L. would forgive her. One year, when they were stationed in Japan in the peace between Korea and Vietnam, looking for someone, anyone, to teach her to fight, D.L. would meet Inoshiro-sensei. His lecherousness was fortunately second to his duty, which was to pass along the assassin way of ninjutsu. In the following period, she stopped attending school, and started wishing her father would do more than spit venom in her face, though he never would. It was enough for her to abandon their household, choosing the latent threat of one old man's lust over another's will to power. She realized one day that the rate of training was accelerated, and when questioned, Inoshiro unveiled that this was the way of the assassin, the jack-of-all-trades warrior who couldn't dedicate their whole life to battle. Not heroism, just pragmatism. In the years later, after returning to her parents' home and beyond, she began to understand the true purpose of her techniques, and to view herself in some newly autonomous way. Once returning to America, she set out seeking the sisterhood of Kunoichi attentives, having heard promising rumors. At the end of all of this conversation, D.L. and Prairie are still waiting for Takeshi's inevitable appearance, and the younger asks the elder how they'd met. D.L. does not take it well. Okay, thank you as usual, Will. Um, what did we what did we think of these chapters? Who wants to give their overall impressions first? I I really like them. Um, it's I think I, I think what I ultimately come out, come out of with th these chapters is I mean obviously with with chapter seven we're really by the end of it we kind of get a real firm understanding of the stakes that are that are at play. It's always kind of been hinted at, and I think now we finally kind of get our first. Um, real view of the seriousness of the situation that that um, not just Prairie, but you know Frenessi and and really everyone involved is is kind of in at this point. Um, I also think I, I love the scenes in Chapter Seven with Billy and the the vomitones <laughs> and the wedding. Uh, we'll get into that. Um, and I, I I love DL. Like DL might be my favorite character in the book, and her backstory is just a fascinating read um which you know obviously we'll get into that too but um yeah I mean, it's not i don't think necessarily there's anything in these chapters that is absolutely stand out in terms of you know technical writing proficiency or anything like that i just think they're two well-done chapters that do a lot to propel the story and, and and set the stakes for what's coming up a lot of character work too yes yeah well, what about you? So when I first read this book, I think, I think up until chapter seven, I was kind of lukewarm on it. 
and something about the mix of very, very aware uh, social commentary and incredibly uh, effective humor in that chapter really sold me on the book. And <laughs> when I got to learn about uh, basically the incredible badass that is Dara Louise, yeah, I mean, I, 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 that's when I decided that all, everything I'd heard about Vineland was overblown in terms of its uh, <laughs> limitations as a novel. Because like, it, I agree, it's, the, the actual prose in these chapters is not, like, breathtaking. Although it is very good, it's by no means a step down from any of the others. It's just that, you know, the previous ones have had some very standout moments. So it's it's just kind of everything coming together here. At the, at this moment, you start to see the shape of what what the book is gonna be, and it's really quite it's quite fun. At at this moment, it's got it's got really dark moments. Well, <laughs> these chapters have really dark moments, yeah. but it's it is kept not light, but it's kept feeling full bandwidth. Unlike some of his other works, where when he's in a in a mode of social critique, it can be quite depressing. He's yeah, really true. struck the balance. Um, I I agree with everything you guys said. That while there isn't, you know, it it is harder to probably pick like a quote out from these two chapters that you know would be similar to to the some of the writing that we featured through what we've read out in you know not just this book so far, but in the books prior. But it, it really is just two incredibly well-written chapters. Well-written from a standpoint of the amount of characters that these chapters are handling on, on their own. Weaves, how Pinchon actually weaves all of that together. Because there is something very... I don't even know if I can think of a specific word for it, but there's something very comforting in the way that these two chapters fade in and out of memory as transition yeah. as transition between things. And the way that Pinchon accomplishes that is truly impressive. You know, it's not something that you can basically compress down into a quote that you can read out in three minutes on a podcast. You'd have to read pages of material to to understand kind of this effect that I'm talking about. But the ways in which the the narrative shifts from the events proceeding now back to, you know, 20 years ago and then tracing lineage through family lines and then back to the, back to the present and then back to a different family member's point of origin and the way that all of these things kind of intersect. If you were to really map out like on a piece of paper, all of the different places, these two chapters go from a standpoint of the, whose stories they're telling and, and how they fit together, it would be quite a complicated map. Um, but at, at no points, at least to me anyway, did that feel disorienting or overwhelming. It, it truly feels like following along with somebody's thought process as they're thinking about like how they've ended up where they are here, you know? Um, so that really is what stands out to me most about these, about these two chapters. Um, and there's, there's also plenty of humor in the first chapter, um, Chapter seven is is one of the more consistently funny chapters, I think. Oh yeah. Um, from start to end of of anything that we've read for the show so far, which we'll get into obviously. Um, 
before we get into the fine details of everything, Cody, I, I guess it might be a smart idea of thinking from a a standpoint of how kind of back and forth a lot of the material in these chapters are to kind of give a basic layout of like what the situation that everyone is trapped in now at this point for, for the listener, if they were having a hard time parsing that out, how would you describe the situation that they're in? It's, I mean, you have this, uh, so at this point we've, I, I think everybody is aware of, of Brock and um, it's, he's to, to kind of pull back from, an earlier chapter, he's kind of Isaiah two, four, like lurking in the shadows in the room that everyone's in. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of the part where I I feel, I feel like at least he kind of, his presence is, is seen finally. So, you know, with Fernessi and her, her past, her, you know, leaving Prairie and Zoid and, um, going and, and kind of essentially going underground, um, for reasons that become clear later. Um, you know, Prairie's on this journey to kind of find out what happened to her. Zoid's trying to figure out, everyone's kind of trying to find what, you know, why, why all of a sudden Brock is interested again in Fernessi. And DL, I, I, I go back and forth between who is ultimately kind of the, the center point of all of this in the story, whether it's DL or Fernessi. I think DL is more of a bridge between all of the characters and Fernessi is kind of the, the balancing point of not just the characters, but the plot as well. Everything kind of, she's the center mass and around which everything is, is kind of revolving at this point. So, um, everyone's in their own way, trying to find out what has happened that has caused Fernessi to come back up into significance and why everyone has kind of different motives for trying to track her down and figure out where she is. Yeah. I'd say that's pretty, and I agree with your assessment too, that, that it seems like DL is is the the uniting force for a lot of these diff- disparate plot lines, but it really does, at the end of the day, kind of revolve around Fernessi and the things that she has been up to and is currently in involved with. Um, I guess we can we can speak more to the 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 cultural critique when we get to the next chapter because that's that's going to be probably more more prescient there for what Will would have had to add. Um, so getting into chapter seven. We start with where the Vomitones went off to from the the Bodhidharma Pizza Company with um, Prairie after after they they part ways with the calamity that unfolded there in the earlier chapter, and we learn that Zoid has passed Prairie the business card given to him when he was working for uh, Kahuna Airlines, but. More importantly, we're going to a very Italian wedding. Um, <laughs> and I say Italian uh, not, in the, not in the sense of the, the, the country of Italy, uh, but in the sense of the, the mob as represented in yes. movies and TV. This is not a Tuscany <laughs> wedding by any means. No. In the, maybe the, the late 1900s. Um, what did we think about the whole scene set out at the wedding? Um, and sort of the events that go on there because we shift away from Prairie for a little while. I really find Ralph Waybone to be, he's not, he not so much two dimensional, but written as like an intentionally flattened character. Somebody mm-hmm. who only really exists to, to establish relations, not, not in terms of the book, but in terms of the diegetic world, the world that the book is trying to portray. 
that he he is just a fixer as he as he tells his son we are a wholly owned subsidiary we don't own anything mm-hmm. we're just here to make things happen and i think the the way that that's conveyed about this character is really really fascinating because i'm not sure how he does it but he does i think it also says a lot about him just the way in which he's introduced emerging from a pool in designer clothes basically <laughs> yeah um, really, really sets the tone for him as a character <laughs> there there is i made a reference to the sopranos before we started recording uh, but I feel like a lot of people in recent history have been going back through and rewatching The Sopranos and realizing how that show is kind of funny, more so than just like dark or dramatic. There is a real comedic element that runs through it and just how ridiculous all of the people in that world are. Um, and I, there's a part of me that in my head canon of events, David Chase just read Vineland and got to this chapter and was like, well, I need to know <laughs> who those people are and what kind of life they live. And that was what led him to write the Sopranos. Just extrapolated the whole show from. Yeah. From just be like, how does that guy end up that way where he's swimming in designer <laughs> clothes and, and close talking business at people. Um, it, it's, it's just, it's so fascinating how, how much of a caricature, pretty much everyone at that wedding is especially the hitman or mob yeah. enforcer who keeps running back and forth between yes. the band and wave own less um, of a hitman and more of an errand boy really yeah but there's that one line that Pinchon throws out there that the second time he runs up he's sweating anxiously like he may yeah. finally get to use the skills of violence that he has or something <laughs> like that where it's almost like this is a this is a a mob that has had no reason to do any crime for you know quite a while, and this guy's just chomping at the bit to actually. You gotta let me. You gotta yeah. let me cook. <laughs> exactly. Well, and the, the the irony of it all is that everything is described and discussed, and the characters act like they are mobsters. But mm-hmm. they're they're not really no no. Like he just he runs like a normal conglomerate, as far as I can tell. There's nothing illegal happening except for the normal indiscretions of the the extremely wealthy. Well, no, one of they're, the th- they're playing make believe. That's what they're doing. Yeah, and one of the things that came to my mind about this in in us talking about how this book represents like such a massive time of change, where like the old old systems of being and old systems of living are dying away to make room for something else. There is another interpretation to be found here that these guys actually were like mob mobsters at one time in the sixties and seventies when that was just as big as, you know, the hippie movement or these other countercultural movements that, that Pinchon is examining. And just with the way that time has gone, they've just ended up basically being legitimate businessmen but that's the only way that they know to be from a cultural standpoint. And so they're just sticking to it, even as they work for these decentralized conglomerates rather than an actual criminal enterprise. Oh yeah. And I think that's the, like if we're going to say there is a correct interpretation, I think that one's definitely more correct than the comedic one. Yeah. However, the idea of all these guys just being intentionally delusional, pretty excellent. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. They, they they couldn't they couldn't quite allow themselves to believe that they'd become desk jockeys when like twenty <laughs> years ago they would have been breaking some guy's head over like 
protection racketeering or something. Yeah. Yeah. Busting kneecaps in the union picket line. Yeah, right. Yeah, it just just the like cuz you can especially speaking to the wholly owned subsidiary line that Will brought up like the way that Pinchon writes this, you can see exactly how this would look in like an organized crime or like a mob movie. Someone like pulls yeah. some guy really oh, close yeah. and he just goes, "One thing you have to know." Ralph confided to his namesake <laughs> the day the kid turned 18 and got his Ventuanissimo party three days or three years early. At the time, a sensible move, given the many talents then surfacing in the character for getting into trouble. Before you get too involved, is that we are a wholly owned subsidiary. Just, you're expecting something completely different to come out of his mouth. Yeah. And then, and then he just uses that phrase. Um, I love it. And it just sets up... I feel like that scene of him leaving the pool wearing basically designer clothes and then that interaction really sets up the chapter for the the level of insanity that you're about to watch unfold because the <laughs> bands have come in disguise oh as, my God. as we have previously um, been told uh, when they were talking with Zoid that they had to find a way to, 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 to look Italian in order to play this Italian wedding. And, and boy, do they. Their disguises seem to just be deciding to dress like Frankie Valley in the Four Seasons yep. or some other doo-wop group <laughs> with, <laughs> with and, these. <laughs> and their idea of preparing for an Italian wedding is to practice all of these. What are I didn't do that. I didn't look this up. I should have. Are they like Fellini scores? Oh, that's a good question. I should have. I should, there we, was uh, one of the songs was in a Fellini, either was in a Fellini film or it was named after something, some aspect of a Fellini film. I don't remember off the top of my head, though. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, yeah, and not, then, not Fellini films, but uh, just a, a, Italian art films, it seems. It would have been even better if they were all from like Giallo horror films which maybe they are i'm not maybe, so yeah. f so familiar with that genre that i can spot all of it but if they went up there to play songs off of like you know deep red or you know suspiria or <laughs> these other these other films of that period that would have also just matched like the the overall sort of impression we've been given of those characters too well i, I think what really what really makes this uh, for me at least like so absolutely hilarious is when you consider exactly how they're dressed, and I just want to read just the description of it real quick. <laughs> yeah, go for um, it. They, they had at last ascended a confusing network of winding streets, putting the last touches to their costuming and makeup, the glossy black short synthetic wigs, the snappy mint-colored matching suits of continental cut, the gold jewelry and glue-on mustaches, just before rolling to a stop at the main gate of the exclusive community of Lugaris Altos, and all being ordered out of the van and subjected each to a discreet body frisk. And it kind of goes on from there. So... When, when I'm reading this and knowing that this is a like a hardcore like crust punk band, this is like <laughs> if Crass or the Germs showed up and and like donned these like really bad '70s used car salesman outfits and just really leaned into the accents and just the absurdity of it, and it absolutely paid off. Like everyone was sold on these guys. As soon as they started doing, and they're like they're adept enough at their instruments to play these songs and to understand <laughs> how a fake book works. So it's like 
it's doing so much with the idea of these these like hardcore punk rock guys who normally are you know supposedly don't know how to how to play their instruments or not, not well at least and know nothing of music theory and all that but here are these like very apparently very highly educated musicians who just happen to be these crust punks who also happen to be cosplayers to play bizarre <laughs> italian standards at a, at a fake italian wedding and not just italian standards but weird proggy like yeah. whatever that last song is that they play where it describes them going through different time signatures and it's like if king crimson did wedding music this is essentially what they're playing yeah for a stereotypical italian wedding yeah yeah and then there might be jokes within those movie titles because looking up just the first one mondo kane leads me to a real film from 1962 um it's an italian film about a documentary or a a supposed documentary that quote uh let's see here let me scroll heck up um these scenes are presented with little continuity as they are intended as a kaleidoscopic display of shocking content rather than presenting a structure argument despite claims of genuine documentation certain scenes are either staged or creatively manipulated to enhance this effect so it's apparently a shocking, very violent film, which fits very much for the kind of other things we know about these people. But it's it's uh, title score. It's like title track is a song called More, which won a Grammy Award and earned an Oscar oh, wow. nomination for Best Original Song and was covered by Frank Sinatra, Andy Williams and Roy Orbison. Jeez. So it's possible that these kids had heard a cover of this Italian song by one of those three artists and then went, huh, we could probably just perform that in Italian and it's by Frank Sinatra. So we're dressed for the part kind of, yeah. <laughs> so there, there might be more context to unearth with the other titles that are, that are listed in there. Um, which just goes to show how intense the research Pinchon does is, as we've remarked a number of times. Well, or what a film nut he is. Yeah, yeah. that's for yeah. sure. Yeah. Um, their costume also goes so far as to include what I interpreted as a a fake Italian-American accent um, in the scenes in which the, the ex-enforcer is running back and forth trying to get them to pick a better thing to play. He's speaking to members of the band, and I... I don't know if I just want this to be true, but something in the way that the dialogue is actually written out on the page felt like rather than their actual voices, they were speaking in that Italian-American like mob accent that everybody knows. Well, I, yeah, I picked up on that too, but I think specifically because it's described as um, what Isaiah T4 detecting not only its inauthenticity, but also its potential for insult drew the young band uh, eponym aside for a word or two. Though Ralph Jr., who had talked Californian all his life, had only taken it for some kind of speech impediment. <laughs> so I, I'm, I'm with you on that. Like, that keyed me into that there. Yeah. And I'm glad that you had that that in the notes as far as the, the Californian language. Because I, I just, I love the idea that they would, have, they would immediately go from speaking in that, like, you know, stereotypical, like, Southern California accent that everybody also knows what it sounds like. Mm -hmm. To then immediately in this scene... I'll just read out the quote. Seeing that Billy Barf, enjoying a surrender to panic, had forgotten all about the quick-release clips at the end of the guitar strap he was being strangled with, 
Isaiah came over and popped them loose for him, allowing the band leader to stagger away, trying to croak some air back into his lungs. Actually, Isaiah began, I'm a percussion person. My job is to take hard knocks and rude surprises, line them up in a row for some folks, can dance to. It's all I do, really. But as a connoisseur and from the story your face seems to tell a recipient of some of life's hard knocks yourself, you can see the present crisis may not be worth emotional investment on the scale you contemplate, not to mention the bruises on Gino, a.k.a. Billy, his neck, which will have him wearing bandanas for weeks, with crossover implications musically and also generating with numerous old ladies hickey suspicions you can well imagine no far from being a hard knock here. Why, it's not even a brushstroke on life's top symbol. Come on, eh! Like, it's just... <laughs> it's so insane. The idea that these teenagers <laughs> would go to this length to go play a show that is almost definitely not going to give them that much money. Like, it might be a paying gig because bars don't pay well for live music, but nope. it's, it's, man, it's one of the, like I've mentioned at the top of the show, one of the most consistently funny um, chapters or sections to a chapter in anything that we've read for the show so far. I, I, I was laughing my ass off reading through this. I also do, I'm thinking about it now. I do love the fact that this is between, uh, I'm just ref- going through the episodes or the, the books that we've done. This is the second instance in which Pinchon has given teenage characters uh, a lot of confidence and agency in doing what they're doing and being able to essentially fool adults. Um, he's in Lot 49. We ha- I can't remember his name, but the, the guy that was essentially the hotel manager. Um, <laughs> Miles. Ba- Miles, thank you, yeah. Who you know, is a teenager and has, you know, all the confidence of an adult and is able to convince his way into a lot of situations involving adults. Um, and that's kind of essentially what's going on here. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, you also specifically had in the notes, Cody, that you loved the word, uh, deuteragonist. deuteragonist yeah. I forgot about that word being in here. I, I do love that <laughs> word. And it's one that I, I need to start using more often. Cause it's like, it when I came across it again, I was like, I know this word because I've read this book a couple of times and I had to like stop my memory and, and like really dig around. Like, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember what it is now. And it's, it's just a great word. It's one of those words. It sounds made up, but it's not, it's absolutely a real word. Yeah. It, it sounds like something that, you know, would be in like the book of slang used by the dude in yeah. the big Lebowski. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's kind of like with, uh, I can't remember the word now for jumping, throwing something through plate glass, how that doesn't seem like a, yeah. Thing. Yes. Defenestration <laughs> doesn't seem like it's a word, but it sure is. It sure is. But for anyone who doesn't know, Deuteragonist is essentially like the second fiddle in the story, the person second to the antagonist. So the Donkey Kong joke here is that Mario's second fiddle in that game. Right. Yeah. That, that man, what, what, a, what a, what a place to find that word. I know, right? <laughs> um, does anyone have anything else they want to add on specifically the vomitone section of Chapter 7? Only that it's the Italian wedding fake book by Deleuze and Guattari. Thank you, yes. It's, I mean, it's <laughs> deeply hilarious. There are layers to that joke. If, if you don't find that funny, um, I can't say go read like the anti-Oedipus. But, you know, go learn about Deleuze and Guattari because that is a very funny It adds joke. a lot to that joke, yeah. Yep, I agree completely. Um, 
so that takes us to one of the many very intelligent transition points in this book where he just kind of draws back the camera, so to speak, from the stage where all of this is happening. And we learn that the entire time they've been playing the show, Prairie's been sitting up at a hill. And then she is approached by somebody scanning for business cards. Um, and this is where our, our introduction to DL comes from. Um, what did we think about this this particular section as it relates to the backstory that Prairie learns about to the barely more information we get about the business card itself. What did, what do we think about this specific area? I mean, I think it's remarkably efficient because, you know, I cannot relate to uh, never having known one of my parents, but mm -hmm. I cannot imagine it is <laughs> that that kind of self, uh, modification in the mirror would not be a very common experience and further along when we get to them comparing notes essentially I, I think that they you know there there is a lot that needs to be communicated between the two of them and there were a lot of ways that it could have been communicated in a very uh, they caught each other up shorthand kind of way but instead Finchon goes through and describes the specific things in such a short period that it's kind of bedazzling yeah but I also like that he's 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 really highlighting how difficult it is for DL to be able to try and like grapple with how much she really needs to put out there just given the, the kind of delicate nature of everything um, it's because it, what it really comes down to is, you know, this is, it's an adult talking to a, a, someone who's still a kid, really, um, yeah. about a really heavy and dark subject that's very personal for that kid as well. And you don't, I mean, you don't know this kid, so you don't know what, if any, relationship they might have had with Pernessi at that point. Um, so it's like to, to really highlight the, the, the eggshells that are being walked on by DL, I think was a, a really, really smart choice um, that if it wasn't in there, I don't think the conversation between those two would have had the emotional impact that it had. Yeah, I agree. I also think that this section is, is an example of pinch on developing some writing skills as far as talking about the importance of, of, of an antagonist without needing to really introduce you to that antagonist or have you directly spend time with them. Like, Brock Vond has not been in the narrative, really, but is mentioned by these other characters, and so there's a, a continuously building presence around him where all of these random people know who he is, all of these random people know that if he's, if he's around at this particular time, it is a problem. But because of information that from a narrative perspective, they either don't need to share right at that moment or it wouldn't make sense for them to share right at that moment. We know that there's something else they know or that we know that something is indicative of something important, but we just have to wait for it. I don't think that the younger Pinchon, looking specifically to Vineland as kind of this evolution and this this growing maturity from him as a, as a writer, would have done that in Gravity's Rainbow. Um, and I feel like a good example of that is is the fact that we are we're introduced to the the sadistic Nazi 
very early in the book and through him just being directly present there. There's really not much sort of talk about him or, or building up that character. He's just sort of present there on the page. So the other thing that, that really impressed me about this, again, looking at, at an evolution of writing style perspective, is just the way that he's been unfurling details little by little through different characters and different conversations rather than just immediately showing the reader what those things may be or what may actually be be going on. I think it seats the reader in a much better position to experience the narrative to the effect that Pinchon is hoping that it'll have. Yeah, and I, I mean, again, this is something that we've talked about since the beginning of this uh, book. Is it, This is a, a great example of of Pinchon's strength in writing characters because we really didn't get that as much with the first three books. Um, not to say that there aren't good characters in those books. They're just not given the amount of characterization and, and depth that we have here. I mean, we're eight chapters into the book now, and we've got so much backstory and, and insight on these characters. Um, and that's just the ones that we have actually interacted with at this point. Like, you know, like you were saying, Brock is, is not here yet. He's here in spirit. And his presence, like the the mention of him at this point, the fact that we know nothing about him actually physically as a, as a person, as a character in this book, but the mention of his name is enough to instill that that feeling in us as a reader that we should fear this person. Um, I, that speaks to his 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 skill and his growth as a writer between Gravity's Rainbow and this point. You know, for everything that was amazing about Gravity's Rainbow, all the technical. Um, craftsmanship that he showed in that book. I, th- I think, you know, going back again to what people were expecting from this, you know, it, it doesn't have that. It has really well done character development. And I think that's what kind of threw a lot of people off when they initially picked this book up after reading something like Gravity's Rainbow. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, beyond even this chapter, chapter seven being a good example of his development, I think there's actually to some extent, uh, an illustration of his development within it. We open on the Wavone estate and we get all these details about what's going on and we get this view of Ralph Wavone as this guy who is defined by what he wears and the business he manages. Mm-hmm. And all of that, if, if anybody's been listening since our Lot 49 episodes, I talked a lot about how Pinchon in his early works does characterization almost exclusively through uh, essentially centering the perspective of characters in a in a non in indirect way, and if you read between the lines of those first what two three pages, you know, Jelsamina being a daughter didn't of course get any bottle, but did he hear her complaining? That is not you know the narrator. That is Ralph Wave Vone thinking about mm-hmm. his family. Yeah. And at, that doesn't go away in the later part of the chapter. But what we do get is some more direct interiority. We do get description of this is, this is Prairie doing this. And then he delves into the actual experience that she has. There is some more mediation for the sake of clarity. I do. Uh, I, so I did learn because I, t- I, I will say I'd never really watched Hawaii Five O growing up, even though my grandpa did. Um, the the lyrics that appear um, that go along with it while it's playing totally made up. 
I forgot that that was an instrumental theme song and, and yeah. John made lyrics for that song. Ta, 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 I, I was ta, hoping. Ta. I was hoping. That's all. I was hoping that was the case. <laughs> yeah. Because seriously, I can't imagine somebody greenlighting down in the streets of Honolulu, just booking folks and being patched through. What a luau, Hawaii I mean, Five O. That wouldn't horrible. be the worst television theme song. <laughs> no, but it, yeah, it's bad. It's bad, but it would. Yeah. It's no leave. It but at least it's intentionally bad. True. I think most television intros are bad. I think the only two. If they I have can, lyrics, they're almost always bad. Yeah, the only two that I can reliably always listen to is the Mad Men introductory song and then the Lost intro, but that's just like a single discordant note played for 10 seconds and it's over. I, as far as, and this is, this is a stretch because it's not really, it wasn't written for the show, but any of the versions of Way Down in the Hole that were on the wire are great. Oh, that's fair. Well, I do think that Steve Earle's version is kind of crazy. It's different, so, but it, yeah. if, I'm a big Steve Earle fan, so it, it fits with his style at that time. Um, sure, yeah. But it, it's definitely, uh, I, think I think that might be why they saved it for season five. It's, it's just, it's crazy. It's not bad. It's just out there compared to every other one. Yeah. So the quote that I was thinking of comes from chapter five. Um, and it's, it's from like the, literally the second page of chapter five is where it starts, where it says, in fact, what he'd done was check in right next door to her so that they were standing on adjacent lanai's hundreds of feet above sea level having this adult discussion, each holding a can of beer for Nassina Bikini and Zoid in an old pair of baggies, except for the lethal altitude it could have been the year before last, back in Gordita Beach. Above them somewhere, another couple were screaming at each other, out of control, their voices punctuating... Helped to calibrate Zoid and Fernessi's own, though they could share no, no, no smug look, meaning at least we're not that bad, because they knew better. Like, that is, a, that is the same thing you're talking about, Will, where it's, it's one sentence at the end of that quotation that changes the context of yeah. just how you're viewing those characters in your head and conveys a depth of history that I think a lesser writer from a standpoint of, of, of constraint, like adding, you know, constraint to them to, to still actually deliver that emotional impact would want to spell that out over a whole nother paragraph to explain how their relationship, you know, degraded or was always bad. Whereas Pinchon just includes this, this one sentence that is coming from the mind of one of these two characters from Zoid. And it just conveys the fact that, Nope, this this marriage has kind of sucked like ever since the wedding and they're not they're not any better than anyone else screaming at each other. Um and how that one piece of information added later changes retroactively the audience's understanding of certain things that he's meant or that he's included before. Like that adds so much more context to the weird impasse that Zoid and Frenessi had at the wedding when Zoid was in his like very romantic sort of reverie. It said like can't love save everybody? And then, you know, she has the response that she does. We, we learn that these, are, that these are people who are not really... And then, of course, in these two chapters, we learn exactly why they got married in the first place. Um, so just that, that way that he keeps including these one or two sentence portions of dialogue or 
prose that have such a massive effect on the characters with an economy of words is absolutely speaks to his evolution as a writer that's just not present in anything before this. And it only gets better. Yep, it sure does. Um, do we have anything else before we want to go into chapter eight? I mean, we, we haven't talked about a girl and her gun. Oh, yeah. Oh, so, yeah. This, I'm sorry, a girly with a gun. Yeah. Um, yes. So after, after Frenessi agrees to go with DL, uh, she goes back down to inform the Vomitones that they're leaving, and the Vomitones become very smitten with her um, almost immediately. And she does indeed perform a song. And I have said before on previous episodes that I am one of the the five dentists or the 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 one in five dentists that don't recommend trident gum or pinch on's <laughs> lyrics um this is one of his songs that i do enjoy because you can say you have to like this one yeah this is. you can very easily map this to like what the melody would be like um and it, it is quite funny and i i just love the way that everybody's loving it even though it's it doesn't make any sense as a premise for a song. Not really. Like, what is like? I, there, there are some like euphemisms snuck in there, but it's basically just a pretense to make those euphemisms. Yeah, but it doesn't come together. It's just kind of like, hey, dick jokes. Yeah. <laughs> did, did you have anything else you wanted to add to chapter seven? Well, I do, I do really appreciate the way that it seems like, you know, puppy love or not, uh, it does seem like Prairie and Isaiah 2-4 do care for one another. Th yes. That is illustrated yeah. quite well. Yeah, very true. The fact that Isaiah 2-4 feels secure enough to make a joke about potentially running away with this other woman, yeah. um, and that Prairie is not offended or annoyed by that at all, I think speaks volumes to the relationship that they probably yeah. have. They have, I, I doubt they have a healthier relationship than a lot of adults in yeah. in this story. That's for sure. Yeah, that is for sure. And of course, there's the fact that the Transams engine has been tuned to make music. Yes, which is just a cool premise. Yeah. <laughs> so that does bring us to chapter eight. Um, Prairie goes off with DL to uh, to this. How would you describe the place that they go to tucked away um, in, in seemingly an impenetrable forest? What, what did you guys think well, of the place that they went the to? Fact, the fact that it's described as being described in agro world immediately yeah. just got me uh, pretty uh, in a weird place. I, so I glommed onto the, the Asalan Institute and I just had to do a little bit of research on that to save everyone the uh, the deep dive that i i got started on and had to force myself away from it's pretty interesting that place um so it was actually built over um what was a native reservation um of the asylum tribe uh there was a hot spring that was there and um it like in the 60s they basically developed it into this it, it kind of became like an alternative uh, philosophy, new age kind of thing over time, but they would have these um, guest teachers come in and give these like lectures on different topics 
and you would pay you would essentially pay to like go there for a weekend and like sit in on these lectures while sleeping in sleeping bags on the ground outside but the name like some of the names they pulled like just looking at the wikipedia list like Joan Baez, Ray Bradbury, um Aldous Huxley, Albert Hoffman, um Jerry Rubin, they I mean people from all different areas of the of the 60s and 70s and and eventually the 80s Terrence McKenna I just saw that name um Ooh. yeah so you I mean this just people would just come in and it was kind of like for a long time apparently it was just this like almost communal kind of thing like you there were still charges to go and you know they had to pay for the upkeep and the buildings and all that their overhead it eventually got bought out by a big conglomerate in the early i think it was the early 2000s it may have been a little bit later than that um 2012 they got professional executives to run it and then a series of things happened and it just ended up shutting down so it's no longer there but it's oh. a pretty interesting read like i i could probably spend more time reading about it i just happened to glom onto that one particular thing in the chapter and <laughs> yeah that's reading a pinch on book so i have a much shorter answer oh and it, a much better one i will say Ooh. <laughs> um, okay it it's it's a it's a feminist ninja cult <laughs> which yeah. i mean I was joking about it being better because yeah, that's really that's really fascinating. But also, I mean, this is this is so many different. I'm sure that the SLN uh, Institute is more indicative than others. But there were so many 70s and 80s New Age retreats that mm -hmm. were essentially just <laughs> essentially just impressing abuse patterns upon people who attended, and yeah. that's exactly what this is. Well, especially to the to the point where, like you're saying, there's so many of these places that pop up, but they're all basically the same. There's a there's that throwaway line in there where Prairie recognizes breathing tactics that one of them is using from yeah. working at the pizza place. So just literally the same information, but served up differently in, yeah. in a different in a different environment. The the thing that really ties into the the cult cultishness of it all because if you're not aware of the specific implications of what they're saying you might think okay this is just like a weird place where people focus on being ninjas but it, it the the self-criticism sessions are a key part of how cults function if you yeah. go back and dig into those at all mm -hmm. i mean that's essentially what scientology does with uh, processing Oh yeah, I mean that—that's a, a very targeted, very intentional version. Self-criticism yeah. as like a thing is not necessarily like evil. Uh, it's usually destructive, but it is. It, well, yeah, it can easily be weaponized. Absolutely. Exactly. Yeah, it's—it's it's usually one of those things that starts off with the best intentions and just hurts people yeah. so much that they can't tell. Mm -hmm. So I have to be the the bearer of bad news um, for I. I had to find this out too, so I have to kill it for everybody else. There is no Kunoichi. Um, oh, I know. So I was looking at the the, the pinch on Wiki um, and wanted to learn more about that. And uh, it turns out, so the the Wiki page for that particular section has not been updated since 2015. Um, in 2017, they essentially historians came to the conclusion that there's no records of that. And it's actually a Japanese cont term for woman. So it's essentially kind of like jargon 
um, and it's more of a um, fictional kind of concept, which, I mean, it's still, I still love it. I still, like, they're still <laughs> awesome. It just sucks that it wasn't real. It kind of, it's like it, the Santa situation now, the, the illusion is shattered. Were you also hoping that the, uh, the Jesuit martial artist women were real from Mason and Dixon? Is, are they not? Uh, I hate to break it to you, Cody. <sighs> this has just been the most depressing day of my life. <laughs> so a cr- crazy-ass tiny theory time. Oh, um, go for it. I wonder if the, the resonant usage of assassin doesn't have something to do with the mythological nature of the idea of Kunoichi. Because for anybody who's unaware, assassin derives from this very strange set of myths that came about in the medieval period. Basically, the late Islamic Golden Age had a bunch of Europeans terrified of, like, Muslim invaders in various forms. And one of those ways was in hypothesizing that there was this mountain full of mystics who would kidnap various people of all kinds, use incredible quantities of opium and cannabis to brainwash them, and then send them out to kill uh, political targets, essentially. And that's where we get the word assassin. So the idea that the, there's this myth of female ninjas who were disguised as geishas and prostitutes, is it, it feels like it fits that like a glove to me. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I can see that. What I mean, that that concept too is not um obscure or unknown to historical writing either. I mean, there is a there's a story in the book of Judges in the Old Testament about a prophet, a prophetess who you know, tricks her way into the into the rival king's camp that Israel is about to fight and once she's you know, found her way into not just their camp, but into their king's like tent. She kills him. Um, so that that concept of of women specifically training to infiltrate a place to to kill someone political or otherwise is certainly one that is has some real cultural synthesis throughout history. I so I would not at all be surprised if that was where Pinchon was taking it by by writing out the mythos the way that he did. And at the same time, I find it really fascinating the way that there is all of this mythologization and kind of this, you know, the, the, from the from the author's perspective, the tongue-in-cheek discussion of these badasses who never existed or, you know, existed apocryphally. Mm-hmm. But uh, you also get these very, very realistic and very, like, un- understated scenes where the, the how, how do they describe her? The Sister Rochelle, the senior attentive the mother superior yeah the mother superior Mm -hmm. yeah she is just telling prairie like yeah i can turn invisible but it's because i'm really patient and i just sit here and i turn my body so that it reflects the light the exact same way as (laughs) the room itself would which is by the way how like cuttlefish work yeah Yeah. (laughs) Um, and it's just like it's one of those things that is obviously impossible but is also like actually how anything approaching ninja training functions there is no invisibility there is no floating you're essentially just practicing ways to be hidden in subtle ways Mm -hmm. and it's all about you know determination and being willing to sit and stare at a wall for hours patience yeah 
yeah it, it, it's a it's an interesting contradiction that he's written into this scene yeah and i i also love the fact that like the way that that mother superior character introduces it how she says take serious attention span look sideways then the question of why sh- why sh- why should you want to so just the, the the consideration of why is this even something that i'm engaging in is is a question that to prairie seems almost foreign because she then goes on to talk about her experience with the bodhidharma people and there's a pretty great quote in here from this character um where she says well you ought to see how many gaga little twits we get up here especially around your age group nothing personal looking for secret powers on the cheap thinking we'll take him through the spiritual car wash soap away all that road dirt get him buffed up all cherry again come out the other end everybody hanging around the orange julius next door go wow what's they think like we'll keep him awake all weekend maybe around dawn on sunday they'll start hallucinating have a mental adventure so they can mistake for improvement in their life and who knows or they get us mixed up with nuns or ballet like just i i feel like that statement kind of sums up a lot of the town or the the time rather of just it was a time of just popularizing spiritual enlightenment from either religious yep. syncretism or the you know kind of death of tradi- beginning of the death of like traditional christian religion in the country being something that everyone had to be bought into um certainly all of the history with with assailant that cody just sort of laid out is the real life example of that of all of these hollywood people going there who definitely did not believe in any you know spiritual practices that were being done in earnest there right it was either just a a exercise in in alternative medicine or to to seem interesting for going there or or something like that i, I doubt yeah. any of those people were doing it for for honest reasons and i think that that gets so much to again the 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 weird sea change that the 80s represents and that we've talked about in each individual episode of just these different concepts and ideas falling away from the past that have have been dominant for so long and giving rise to an age of possibility but an age of possibility that is created through pretty terrifying means i would say yeah well there i mean it's that that was the time in in american history where they were trying to i mean basically commodify everything like how can we make right. x a business whatever it is like there was no shame in any of it it was disgusting and it hasn't necessarily stopped but that's actually like that's absolutely when it began was uh, around that time and and that's a prime example of it is that kind of um commercialization of, of spirituality yeah which is exactly what the mother superior here is is expecting from most people who come visit yeah well and, and beyond the actual spirituality stuff i think we should Pay, pay attention to the fact that these are a bunch of like second wave feminists, right? Is that the, that's the timeline, right? Probably, yeah. 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 And uh, you know, I'm not an expert on the history of feminism, but no, yeah, I know, right? But the the <laughs> intense disillusionment and the like almost capitulation really does define kind of how people today look back on second wave feminism. Feminism. Mm-hmm. 
and I wonder if that that was uh you know intentional or not. I wonder if there's much to dig into there because I I, I think it it feels like it fits her whole her entire character, Sister Rochelle. Like they're they're just so tired of trying to get the basic stuff that they're done they're they're done thinking that there's actually a point to it. It's yeah. just an exercise that they engage in at this point. Yeah, I I honestly couldn't have I, I, I can't think of anything to add to that. It's an excellent excellent way to lay that out. Uh did we did we have any thoughts on the sisters of our lady of cucumber patches? Just I'm not, gonna, it. I'm, I'm not gonna attempt to, to say that in in spanish uh if my kids were here i could no i don't want to do that they speak spanish <laughs> but i don't it's a uh, las hermanas de nuestra señora de los pepinares yeah okay. bravo it's uh <laughs> yeah it's an amazing it's an amazing name really <laughs> almost as amazing as more descriptions of food yeah my lord does pinchon love to describe gross food to his reader um he does it so well yeah in a way that i don't think any other writer has i feel comfortable making that broad of a of a generalization um can someone can someone break down the concept of what they're trying to do with the food that they're serving people I found this to be a little bit confusing if there is one aspect of, of these two chapters where my brain was just kind of thrown for a loop a bit. I mean, the, the closest I got, I'm not sure at all. So I'm, I'm saying this all hoping, praying that Cody has a, has a solution to this puzzle. <laughs> oh, don't hang your but, jacket on my hook here. <laughs> but the way I interpret it is that, like, essentially these people have always been so bad at cooking that they developed this weird, like, system of karmic note-taking and like, mm-hmm. like not, not, not note-taking a uh, ledger keeping trying to like uh, assess who does the worst food and punishing each other all with it in order to like force each other to try to be better cooks well also having a seriousness and a dedication to trying yeah. to be a good cook that is sad like profoundly sad to just imagine them failing night after night it's well and i love the term indefinite culinary penance yeah (laughs) that that sums it up so well um it's yeah it it's a weird i don't know it's such a it's like uh i think anyone who enjoys cooking or or food preparation in general like it's their idea of hell like all these people who it's almost like they got the they found the worst of the worst, rounded them up, and they're just hoping that by repetition of of an action they can get good at it eventually. Mm-hmm. Um which obviously is not going to happen. And the fact that when when Prairie comes in and shows them how to make stuff, like she, she's not making anything complicated. No. But it's it the bar is set so low <laughs> that anything she does is going to be better. And I'm curious whether or not like they would actually get better after you know whatever brief lesson they get from her. I sincerely doubt it. I don't think that's one of those I think cooking is one of those skills that you either have it or you don't. And there's really just I, I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. I think you can learn to cook. I think to learn to 
really to have a passion for it yeah, I, that that's where it becomes kind of a different thing i think mm. to be able to cook certain things in certain ways you have to really have that passion and if you don't i like cooking i don't have a passion for it but mm-hmm. i like it enough that i will occasionally try to do things but i'm not going to go out of my way to try to do things you heard to hear first listeners if you're having a hard time learning how to cook cody says give up just stop yeah you're <laughs> never gonna do it I'm, find yeah. something else to do Sign up for that uh that lifetime plan with Uber Eats. What? Yeah. No, I don't know. I don't think we're that's not sponsored by Uber Eats. Sorry, we are sorry. sponsored by Big Aspic, or rather, sure are. Sh- Will alone is sponsored by Big Aspic. <laughs> no, no, no. Does definitely get, not. <laughs> it does get a shout out <laughs> in the description of some of the disgusting food that has been prepared. Yeah. Um, yeah, your Jello salads have scum on them, which which is so like the <sighs> the idea of that is so just disgust. I I don't think I've having grown up in the eighties and nineties, I ate a I ate an inordinate amount of Jello. Um, Same here. I don't know that I've ever seen it get moldy, but maybe I never let it sit around long enough too. The way that I interpreted that is that this has been sitting on a counter for so long, you can see a layer of dust. Just that's is, maybe what it is. It's just like it built a shell of dust. Yeah. Just be like, man, you really made that eleven hours ago, and then didn't a, co- didn't cover it. Or was it turtle it. shell that chocolate that hardens? <laughs> yeah. Yep. Basically. Um. I mean, yeah. yeah. There's there's no interpretation of that description that isn't actually like poison. Yeah. Yep. I'm. I'm also just very curious what a New England boiled dinner is. Um, <laughs> I I read that back a couple of different times, just trying to rationalize what exactly to, that could be. The only thing I could think is if if it's anything like a crawfish boil, like we have <laughs> down here, yeah. but it's not crawfish. It's like oysters and whatever else i get like baked beans are in there probably i don't know see that sounds good though maybe not the baked it beans, could be but... i don't like mm-hmm. oysters but i mean you know it could be good for somebody i don't know but what... yeah that's such a vague <laughs> term <laughs> what, what i interpreted it as was as a fusion of the the, the full english breakfast and okay. the the um boiled pudding Okay. Just done in New mm. England. See, I thought for a second there you were going to say a full English that just gets boiled. Like, just well, they drop the whole plate in there. That in was my bag, first thought. Like a sous vide yeah. machine. Because <laughs> he says it with a shutter. So, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. not good. Well, but also, like, a boiled pudding with ingredients from New England would also be terrible. If anyone's <laughs> had a boiled pudding, it's not a great <laughs> format for a meal. It can be good, though, for like dessert and stuff. That sounds incredibly bad. Imagining, like, again, oysters, various pieces of seafood, and like Atlantic salmon, and what watercress and stuff. What grows up there? Even that it sounds horrible. Capers, yeah, capers, yep, <laughs> some onions. I do also love the fact that they were their planned meal was dip and s'mores and and this mysterious New England boiled dinner. Hey, look, Just, I, you know. Sorry, s'mores sh- with maple syrup. S'mores sorry. with maple yeah. syrup, which doesn't sound that bad. Not terrible, yeah. Doesn't no. sound good, but. I would try it. 
I would, um, yeah, of all the things so far, that I won't try the dip because it doesn't say what kind. It just says dip, and that's concerning. It could just be a, a, a tin of chewing tobacco. Anything that you can physically put a chip into is technically dip. That's, that's fair. I was going to say shout out to the Mill Valley real estate agent for choosing dip. He, he's serving girl dinner um, in an age before <laughs> that was that was a concept. <laughs> So so really he's a he's a he's he's a culinary a Nostradamus. And there's no chips, to be fair. No. It's just gonna be spoons of sour yeah. cream mixed with mayonnaise. Well, considering what they have on hand, Velveeta, cheese whiz, mm-hmm. um Maybe some salsa. Maybe he's making some... like a like a like a queso. A queso. A real <laughs> <fat queso. laughs> A processed oh, cheese product based queso. Speaking of which, we should probably get on to the wonderful recipes that she does prepare. Yeah, does someone want to read those out? The secret to spinach casserole was the UBI, or mm. Universal Binding Ingredient, cream of mushroom soup, whose presence in rows of giant cans there in the Ninjet storerooms came as no surprise. Deep in the refrigerators were also to be scavenged many kinds of pieces of cheese, not to mention cases full of the more traditional Velveeta and cheese whiz. Nor was spinach a problem, with countless blocks of it occupying their own wing of the freezer. So next day, the classic recipe was the vegetarian entree du jour at supper. For the meat eaters, a number of giant bolognese were set to roasting whole on spits, to be turned and attentively basted with a great chili glaze by once quarrelsome kitchen staff, while others made croutons from old bread, bustling about while the spinach thawed, singing along with the radio, which someone had mercifully retuned to a rock and roll station. I love that Velveeta is a more traditional cheese. <laughs> and cheese whiz. <laughs> and yeah, Velveeta and cheese whiz are more Standard traditional cheese. cheeses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I also love that the, the spinach is frozen in blocks in in the freezer spinach is already a green that has a lot of water content in it i i can't imagine if you were to cook spinach that had been frozen for that long the amount of water you just end up with hand like that would be crazy i think think it might just be referencing the froze there are prepackaged blocks of frozen spinach at least there are down here um really that are like brick shaped yeah absolutely i used to do them as a kid all the time you just throw it you don't even have to really add but like maybe a quarter cup of water i think you just throw it in a pot and let it go weird i've never seen those before yeah that was like my childhood (laughs) was blocks of spinach in the freezer they did them uh we have them with like broccoli too i think Hmm. yeah yeah so i also i also have to say that i i am very curious how a bologna cooked like shawarma um, <laughs> would end up tasting. I'm really not interested in the in the the grape jelly glaze, so to speak. But um, honestly, like the more I think about that, it could balance the like the sweetness of that grape jelly could kind of balance the the salty of the meat because bologna is a very salty meat. So it is. See if could, it was that like really could work. But there's no acidity in Concord grapes. That's that's the thing, really right? Yeah, heavy. that's true. Like that's there have true. been dishes made with like duck, for example, that like use orange or even blueberry. Um, 
as like a contrasting like sauce or flavor note. I don't think canned grape jelly is going to quite bring out the the same subtle notes as a as a freshly prepared, you know, orange compote or, you know, reduction of some kind might. I think I think if this was a if this was a binging with Babish episode to make a reference to to him, um I I think that he could prepare something akin to grape jelly that would that would I, you know do the same yeah. thing that you're thinking of but yeah boysenberry would be great say boysenberry i said boysenberry that would be excellent i think yeah i could see that working now i think it's very important that we sit here and figure out exactly why ubi gets its own acronym well, according to the pension wiki, it has to do with Philip K. Dick. I don't know enough about Dick's work, but yeah. Uh, let me pull it up real quick. Um, so obviously, UBI has a different connotation. In, UBI's you know, pensions hat tip to Philip K. Dick, uh, author of the novel Ubik. Ubik is the name of successfully di- different household products, each advertised to solve a different everyday problem, and is used by the protagonist to stop the deterioration of the universe. Um, it goes on a little bit from there, but yeah, that's what they're... That's what they're saying on there. So they're trying to say that it's a it's a reference to Ubik. Just what he just took the K off? I guess. Or maybe it has to do more with the the um I don't know. I don't I haven't read the book, so I don't I can't really speak to it. I'm just basing off off what they are going on here. Yeah, so I've I've read Ubik, but I can't think of anywhere where that. it was abbreviated to just UBI. It seemed like a stretch to me, just yeah. not even knowing anything about the book. Like that, yeah, just dropping a letter off doesn't necessarily make it a reference. That seems like grasping at straws, but... You see, I think it's quite, quite clearly, like obviously and undeniably, mm-hmm. he, he is conflating the ideas of cream of mushroom soup and ultraviolet blood irradiation to make a point about how the foods that we eat are poisoning us from the inside. Obviously. He was calling out ultra-processed foods before it was hip. Oh, I think no, he's I been don't... calling out ultra-processed foods for this whole book, really. Yeah, yeah pretty much. No, I'm pretty sure that it is just a, a funny acronym. Yeah, I think so, too. And, yeah. But I'm similar to LED. Tr- yeah, well, I, don't, I think there's more to LED, <laughs> honestly. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> Because like no, here, it's just a funny little acronym. Little more depth to plum and in, in LED. Like literally, this is the t- the complete list of acronyms that I've been able to compile that UBI stands for, and of course the fire truck, universal basic income, mm-hmm. universal basic income, usage based insurance, Universidad uh-huh. de Bera Interior, Universidad de Bera Interior, uh. Unconditional basic income, United Bank of India, United Barcode Industries, unrelated business income, unidentified or unified business identifier, United Bicycle Institute. Uh, Ooh, that's the one. It's got to be that. It's the United Bicycle Institute. Uh, United Business Institutes, ultraviolet blood irradiation, unexplained beer injury, which I'm sure just came out of people switching around IBU. <laughs> and... Uh, Useless bits of information. 
That last one could almost track. Yeah, but it, I mean, I don't think that's a real acronym. It's literally no, only so. in one place. I mean, the other thing, too, is he's he's he also is just being honest and that a lot of casseroles use cream of mushrooms. Is, yeah, absolutely. It's, yeah, it's to combine its ingredient. Yeah. So it, it could honestly just be Pinchon being like, you know, it might as well be universal as an ingredient in these things. Yeah, I think yeah. that's all it is. is yeah. It's just a funny way to put that. Yeah, so it's exactly like the LED. <laughs> <laughs> Enough said. <laughs> that brings us to the conversation between DL and Prairie. More properly, and also Prairie's investigation into the, the file on the computer. Um, you have a note in here, Cody, about ghosts in the computer and capturing time in a photograph, which is a concept that's expounded upon in Against the Day. Obviously, I haven't read Against the Day, so if you want to to kind of flesh out what you were getting at there. Yeah, so I the, the ghost in the computer part is just my little reminder to myself that I, I really loved the, the way that that scene was described. The writing, the prose there um, mm-hmm. was just absolutely beautiful. Um, but the... I feel like with Mason and Dixon in this book, we've gone so much into against the day. By the time we get to against the day, we'll have almost said everything. That's not possible. There's so much cool stuff that happened <laughs> in that book. But that this is so this this concept of of uh, pho- photographs or film being able to sort of freeze time uh, is huge in against the day. Um, it's a a major part of what is driving the the chums of chance uh throughout that book and um there's i and i I think will might remember that there's a specific scene in that in that story that happens where that involves a photograph and and the the movement of time through it it's really cool um but yeah it's you know again i i come across these these sections that um have these through lines to his other work and it just i think Ultimately, I'm going to have to do the the chronological reading um, to try and I feel like there's something there's got to be a benefit to doing that. And I think that mm-hmm. all these through lines that I'm catching in here uh, are are just pushing me more and more towards wanting to do that as much of a challenge as it'll be. I think it'll be worthwhile. Yeah, ever since I ever since I well, I'm sure it's not an original thought, but ever since I posited that idea on the podcast, when we were going through Mason and Dixon and kind of wrapping it up. I have been curious to do that as well, just to see how that might adjust the way the, that Pinchon kind of lays out his alternate history of the world, so to speak. No, I've seen some people on, on the subreddit that have talked about, um, I think a few people have mentioned having done it, but a lot of people are kind of put off by the fact that you're, you're starting with the big three, um, which, yeah, it's kind of daunting to go through what ultimately is probably like 3000 pages of, uh, of story. But I, I, I think just watching the, the development of, of this, you know, as Kate mentioned, this kind of alternate history, I, I think that a lot of the groundwork that gets laid in, in Mason and Dixon is, is essentially the through line through the rest of, of the story, the, the development of technology and the, the interaction of people with, with the environment and all that it kind of builds and builds throughout each of those stories and, and it kind of, you know, builds off of, off each of those into their own little areas of, of sub study and whatnot. So I think there's something there 
I don't know whether there is or not. I think that can really only be determined by you doing it as, you know, an individual. So certainly couldn't hurt to give it a shot, I guess. Yeah. I guess the question is where you situate V. Do you, do you internalize the, the interpretation that uh, stencils making it all up or do you, do you lean into placing it basically between Mason and Dixon and against the day? Yeah. Yeah. Either way, it would be interesting. To go back to the the time and the photograph thing, I think I, I I'm fascinated by the 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 concept that he's getting at here. Um, I think it's something that's harder to um, really lock into, especially for um, for people who have grown up with with cameras being as ubiquitous as they are now. Um, I think at the time that the story takes place and the time, even the time that it was written, the, the use of cameras was still somewhat novel. It wasn't as, you know, we didn't, we didn't carry them around in our pockets the same way we do now. So taking a photograph had a lot more impact um, and it had a lot more meaning at the time. Uh, Not necessarily, maybe not more meaning, but it, it was a different kind of, of, interaction with with the past it was a more tangible like you're holding this photograph you're you're looking back at this moment in time that is is frozen in front of you and your interaction with you know viewing it as as a piece of media but also as a memory that you have attached to it whether or not you were present for that photograph or if it's just something you're looking at second or third hand or whatever the case may be um i think this is you know there's throughout all of his books, you know, we we've talked about this kind of um, quote unquote magic. And I think photography is, is essentially a form of that. There is a certain magic that exists in there that we have found a way to literally freeze time and to capture it. And it's not someone creating it. It's not someone painting it and, and having that image be shaped by their, their hand and their skill and their, their interpretation of a moment. This is a, you know, you're capturing the actual moment as it happened and it has led to all these different things in time. So the way that this is, you know, used as a means of transitioning that you talked about earlier, Kate, of this seamless transition from one part and time of the story into another, um, is it's one of my favorite parts that I think of the whole book. It's definitely probably my favorite part of these two chapters. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't have said it better myself. Also, what you just said works as a, a perfect defense for Nickelback as a band oh, that God, produced no. a masterpiece. I we were doing so good in this podcast never saying that band's name. <laughs> I figured it would never come up. <laughs> well, hoping to head this off. I do <laughs> I, I particularly love the way that uh, the the narrator does jump between uh, essentially Prairie's guesses at what would have been happening back then mm-hmm. to the to the real history, or at least what's purported to be. I, I think you can probably take it as such. It's very, uh, it's a it's a very. I don't know how to put it. it. It's a really good way of kind of outlining the way that we look back at the past as though it's a caricature. Mm -hmm. Just poignant in that way, I guess. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. 
Uh, do do we have any thoughts on on the reality behind why Zoid and Furnessy got married? Because that's a pretty big uh, piece of information revealed through this this late section of chapter eight. I I I missed it. I've missed it entirely. Where is this? Please. Point um, me. I wish I should have I should have marked off the page, but it it is revealed that they got married because Frenessi got pregnant and they were only kind of a a fling, so to speak of seemingly convenience. Like they were around each other and probably hooked up only a couple of times. Then Frenessi got married or Frenessi got pregnant. So they had to get married. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's how I take it. And it's, I, I think that speaks to and is confirmed by Zoid's character and that I think he thought there was a way to make it work mm-hmm. and he was always kind of pushing for that and I think Frenessi probably knew it was never going to and was essentially just resigned to the fate that she was with Zoid until she wasn't um but yeah I, I, that would be my best guess really yeah I just I, I think that that revelation of information is a pretty huge turn of events for the character that we've spent the first couple chapters getting to know, because the depiction that Zoid has mentally of their marriage and the kind of sacredness of it, I guess is the word that I would say that he's, he he's trying to apply to it certainly does not match what was effectively a, a shotgun wedding. Um, but probably rather than being out of obligation to the the father of the bride, out of obligation to some sense of like Zoid thinking that this is the universe telling them that they they're supposed to be together or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just think it's it's such a, you know, blink and you'll miss it moment. But it says a lot about Zoid's recollection of events. It says a lot about Zoid's mental state in general, as it has existed for, you know, however long ago this happened now. Uh, I guess probably about, you know, 17 years, 18 years ago. And, you know, to the degree to which Luke on one of our earlier episodes had brought up how there are some hints that Zoid is not a mentally fit or a mentally well individual or that he is, you know, potentially not living in reality. This is certainly one of those things that that can draw that question out of the reader. Yeah. But yeah, speaking of speaking of blink and miss it, I I guess Will did not did not catch that on the read through this time. I've read this chapter like five times. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely blink and miss it. What the hell? Yeah, it's it's literally just a sentence in there that that they that she got pregnant and then they decided to get married. Um, sure, and I I mean I you know based on my previous reading of the whole book, that's basically what I interpreted it as. But I mm-hmm. don't remember seeing that line. Your interpretation was correct. Well, Maybe I might have read say. it the first time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Stupid, useless, basic information. Yeah. It's also much of it. Before we get into to DL's backstory, do we have any further thoughts about this this kind of first half of this section where it's it's you know Prairie going through the computer file? Not with that particularly, but I did want to know. So, okay, the pension wiki mentions that there's a a joke that was removed on page 117 in the the description of the drops of ketchup and fat 
I don't know what what they're getting at. It's not in either of my copies of the book, and I have the uh, the Penguin paperback, and I have the Minerva paperback on here on the wiki. It's saying that there's a um, let's see. Uh, we suspect it might be as indicated by the concluding end M dash that as Penchon restrains himself and makes a conscious and public decision to end his detailed description of the flying drops and continue the ta- the narrative by saying sorry, folks. But that in, it says in both the 1990 first edition hardcover and the 2000 vintage edition, it takes out the sorry folks and it's just, uh, just dash, it's the revolution girl, can't you feel it? Which is what I have in both of my copies. Do y'all have any, any edition where it says sorry folks? I have the first edition hardcover and it's not there. It's not there? Yeah, well, it just you says... you have the ebook, right? Yeah, but I, the ebook was only released after like 2008 or something yeah so it's probably not in there i'm i'm curious if that actually is a thing that's in other editions of it that just got taken out so they're they're trying to say that the section that says fernessi gestured with her burger trailing drops of separating ketchup and fat each drop warped by the forces of its flight into swirling micro patterns of red and beige and dash it's the revolution girl dash can't you feel it that there was a where that first dash is before that it it would say sorry folks that's i don't mm. know what the purpose of that would be and no, why do I. I so i don't know yeah I'm, if anyone has a copy of the book that that has that i would love to see see that i think that's an interesting omission to make uh in later editions but i don't know i thought that was an interesting little thing unless it's like an advanced reader's copy or something like i don't know what earlier edition there would be besides the one i have i don't think it's a later printing Right, and that's that's the weird thing. If it's not in the first edition hardcover, why would it be in a later edition and then removed? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it reads. Imagining it being here in my ebook copy, which does not include that, I, it seems like it would feel like a typographical error. Yeah, like, I don't know what. Yeah, this is a first hard first edition first printing. That's weird. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Someone at the Pinchon Wiki who's writing them for. Vineland is drunk, coming up with <laughs> allusions to Philip K. Dick and making up, you know, I inclusions mean, in the text. It's gone almost ten years without an update. Maybe someone needs to get on that. Yeah, probably true. Yeah, I mean, I, I can imagine it being the way that the Pynchon Wiki describes it, with the the idea that it would essentially be a, a lamp shading the hyper specificity. But it doesn't like that moment doesn't feel out of place. It feels yeah. like there's a lot going on and Fernezzi's overwhelmed and all she can focus on is these greasy ketchup spots. Like it's not that's not a crazy thing for somebody to focus on. Not even a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. Yeah. Anyway, on to DL. Speaking of of weird, the criticism that Pinchon can't write women is weird because we have uh, DL in in the text, uh, and we get exposed to her whole backstory and family history. What did we think about uh, her character? This section of the chapter. I like I said earlier. I think she she's probably my favorite character in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that um, obviously her her backstory is is rough. Um, her dad yep. is a real piece of work, um, and I think. I so that's I kind of want to touch on that real quick is is that I I really like that 
the way that her dad is characterized. It's one of those situations of a, of a bad character being written really well, um, where it's obvious that he's bad, uh, but it's not just one of those situations of like, you know, oh, we, you know, we see, you know, he's bad because of this, this, and this, and this. He is bad. Like, he clearly has anger issues, and he's taking it out on, for, on, on DL's mom, but he's also scared shitless of DL. And I, that's something that I really love about that characterization of him is that despite this tough guy facade that he's putting on, he knows his daughter can beat his ass. And like it, it, I don't know. There's just something about the, that little detail that I just really liked the inclusion of that, you know, it's, it's really kind of tearing him down a little bit. And, and, Mm -hmm. you know, he's not the, the big tough guy that he wants to pretend to be. And, um, but yeah, I, th- I think his his characterization, being uh, military police and everything, and and his um, the way he treat treated her mom and treated her, I think definitely defines how she grew up. I think it really. Um, I was thinking back to earlier in chapter seven when it mentioned that she doesn't uh, doesn't use drugs at all, and the fact that she was even drinking. Uh, was kind of out of character for her. And I think a lot of that comes from this, this past that we learned about in chapter eight and that she, you know, and I'm, this is just me thinking out loud here that she would probably want to have a clear mind to be able to be aware of what's going on at all times and not be able to be taken advantage of because, you know, she's taken something that has kind of, you know, dulled her senses or whatever the case may be. So um, that, and that plays into her, just being a badass ninja and, and feminist and singer and everything else that she is. Um, yeah, I, I just, I love DL. What about you, Will? Well, right now I'm, I'm piecing together a way to phrase uh, that. I, I think that you can interpret that uh, phenomenon of her, of her father being terrified of her as sort of an, uh, as an inversion, even not, not a subversion, but a full inversion of the trope of the, the 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 son growing up to beat up his abusive dad who takes out his anger on his mother and oh, the yeah. dad always pushes yeah. him a little bit too far and then he beats him half to death and it's just kind of a you know it's just flipping all of that i think it's it's beyond the fact that it makes sense the way that she talks about it the way that all of the characters are handling it is all very real in the in a really dark sense um and in particular i love the line where um i've just lost it somehow here we go yeah just uh where fernesi asks uh, wait a minute you beat on your mother and she got that who the fuck are you stare back that that instant summarizes uh, DL not in a not in a minimizing sense but you know she she is so much tension she is so mm-hmm. much rage kept very close to the te- close to the chest and it's it's you know you read it and you get it you understand why she'd be so angry and it's incredible to to see the contrast between her as a probably 40 something year old woman and her as a teenager and you know 20 something woman it's it's a really uh wonderfully satisfying progression of a of a character an arc if you will yeah 
Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, obviously, we've talked about it in a, in several episodes across the the course of the show, but Pinchon can certainly write well crafted women, and this is a supreme example of one of them. Where not only is she well put together, not only is her arc well fleshed out, like Will is saying, but she also is monumentally important to the actual progression of the plot as well, um, and just to the the overall sort of narrative here. I, I think that. It's also a section of this chapter that feels very realistic, even though she is going to see, you know, this this like ninjutsu master and, and all of the stuff that's very obviously referential to like old kung fu films and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the circumstances surrounding all of that, and especially her dad, like that is a very well rendered image of what an abusive father looks like and how he got that way. Like from, from a standpoint of entering into the military because it was an opportunity for him to be violent, which is a very real thing. Um, you know, in in your notes, Cody, you have it as murder as a means of recruitment. That is, that is a very real part of a certain subject subsect of the population that goes into the military and how that kind of built him out to be this sort of, stereotypically you know to use to use an online phrase toxic masculinity that that then was you know delivered down onto onto his his family that's that is such a common story that a lot of people deal with and for yeah for for pinchon to sort of encapsulate that in like what is this 10 pages or whatever and package that as not just a backstory for um this character that he's giving you but also as sort of a mini kind of i'll say like tv episode of watching this man also deteriorate under the circumstances of his own choosing like he has chosen to be this incredibly toxic person and this incredibly you know um naive individual who puts all all of his stock into like the idea that he's a badass and he's killed people and like he can he can you know be the the gary cooper strong silent you know man whatever and all of that is undone by his daughter who becomes more you know stronger more deadly we'll say than he is and that flies in the face of everything that he spent his entire life trying to prove to himself to the point where he cannot eventually face his child like that is a micro like greek tragedy in in the middle of this one section so even this minor character who i mean from a writing perspective exists to create the backstory for this this larger character the amount of work that pinchon is putting into that is is incredible um and it's it's one of my favorite parts of this book because yes at at times do all of the characters get very overwhelming sure but there are also moments like this where the presence of all of these characters can lead to such an amazing, you know, movement of writing over the course of these these past ten pages or so. Um, yeah. I love it, and and I and I love her as a character. I think that she's an amazing character. Um, I she almost is a character that I feel like escaped from a William Gibson novel and ended up in a Pinchon <laughs> novel. Well, and I'm glad you mentioned her dad's um, whole characterization essentially being a persona because Mm -hmm. 
not only do we see that he's, you know, he's putting on this this tough guy front and then he's scared of of DL and rightly so. He also like right after he talks about you know, that that line of um where he wants to know what he gets to shoot and he defi- redefines that as not what but who. Um mm-hmm. he immediately once he's actually deployed, he's scared shitless. Yeah, because he's no longer in his little comfort zone where he could be in control of the situation. You know, now he's in this whole different environment. And so we're constantly seeing this, you know, he's putting on this, this persona as being this, you know, big, tough, macho dude. But then the moment he's put into any kind of situation where he is not in control of said situation, it's completely gone. And he's, mm-hmm. you know, just this trembling, um, just scared little boy. And, that's where a lot of you know it, it it sucks because that's a lot of that that cycle of abusive um fathers comes from you know being scared as in and and that loss of control and 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 you know having wanting to kind of dominate to kind of regain that control and all of that you know like you said it's just we we learn all of that in a short amount of time and and it's so well done yeah and even the fact that it's a facade is so true to life those people yeah. who you know, invest heavily into their, their positions as men or their positions as like the ultimate badass or whatever. That is usually how they end up being. When Andrew Tate got put into jail, he became the most melodramatic whiner on the internet. Um, and still after he got out of jail is trying to say that while crying, he's not actually crying. Like it's, it's, it is how all of those people truly are. Um, yeah, and it, it when Pinchon does things like that, it lends a real sense of connection to the world and the characters that grounds some of the more... It gives him the latitude to, to be, you know, a bit crazier, um, zanier, to use a phrase that we've used before. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and doesn't... Those other elements don't take you out of it right away. Uh, I wanted to circle back to Will on your thoughts with um, navigating like the cultural critique and the darkness of that aspect of these chapters in the way that he does, like you had mentioned in your kind of opening statement. Well, I, I do think that there's a, there, there is this fundamental through line um, of this entire kind of section of DL, I mean, it, it, you know, I'm, I'm making it sound more dramatic than it is, but you're, you're seeing DL start to really understand how mechanisms of power work. You're trying to see how different types of threats function against mm-hmm. other people. And it's, it's a very uh, lucid way of digesting all of it to the extent that it starts to, to, break the reality of the character because she is just too awesome (laughs) like she she is everything that she doesn't pretend to be but everything that everyone thinks that she is the moment they lay eyes on her well i i I think i'm going to struggle to to draw the connections any better than just pointing to the fact that um when she goes to her mother when she's young and insists to her, why, why, are, you, why are you staying with this man who, who clearly hates you? 
and her father and her mother response it's his job i think that that being kind of at the center of this chapter is how dl perceives all of these different forms of control is as like you know her her mother then turns the violence onto her to to prove the point i think that's the implication at least that this is these are these are never ending cycles that don't ever start from anything except for the idea that you are supposed to be doing this or that. Yeah, Cody, do you have any do you have any thoughts to expand off of that? I nothing I can add to that. I thought that was well said. Yeah. No, I I I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I th- I think the whole way that this book analyzes like social movements and progress is is very interesting. Um I think that it's possible, you know, just to give an example of, of from like last week's reading um, or two weeks ago, rather's reading. I, th- I think it's possible that you could have spent an entire episode of this show talking about Prairie's opinion of like why it was her time to shine when all this stuff with Nixon was happening. Like that whole monologue yeah, as it relates to her character and where she's from and kind of the way that she's navigating life at that point. It, it's yeah, I, I think that. It, the way Pinchon handles social subversive movements and just developments in society and in history um, are really on display in this book more so than others in a way that is impressive and like eminently navigable for the reader. You don't have to, you don't have to dig too hard to understand what he's talking about or getting to as far as what these things mean. Yeah. And in one of the other highlights I'd I'd like to point to uh, in terms of, how direct these things can, how directly these things can be applied to society as a whole, would be the in, in the same line of her mother turning the the, the spoon onto her. He, she comes clean and tells her parents about uh, the the dojo that she's been practicing at, and her dad just goes into this massive racist rant about how if he ever catches her with one, oh, one, God, one of yeah. those Asians, um, just to mm-hmm. to not read what he says because it's pretty bad you know he says he gets killed and you get a clorox douche you understand me it's really i think it's very important that dl hated with all her heart to say no but she did because on paper understanding that threat is not hate worthy i mean the 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 bigotry is hate worthy but the threat is also really normal you know if you if you took out the racism it's a normal threat the reason she hates it is because she believes it. She knows yeah. it's true, and mm-hmm. every bit of it is true. Yeah, really wishing that I didn't know men who were exactly like her father. Yep. I, I wish that was a less realistic character. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's the, that's the reason we're all so impacted by it, is we yeah. all do. Everyone knows men like that. Yeah. We all, everybody listening to this has met somebody like that, and if you think you haven't, you should introspect. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, it's everywhere. This this kind of person, whether or not they are actively abusive, whether or not they are actual military police who walk around thinking that they get to kill the bad guys, mm-hmm. we all know people who take this, like, patriarchal code to the absolute extreme. It's, it is real, and it, it has been real for as long as humans have been around, really. And that's... Yep utterly depressing yep 
And not to say that, like, you know, Pinchon is a is a feminist writer or whatever. I think there are there are feminist aspects to a book like Crying of Lot Forty Nine. Certainly, um, things that I had talked about when we were going through that book. So I'll point listeners back to those episodes. But I think that the other thing that he does that is very interesting with characters like that is the the thing that challenges those characters the most are women who simply have agency. Like he is not. He's not doing a thing where like tough times, you know, or or bad men create strong women, right? Like he you could interpret this section as that if you wanted to be uncharitable. But that you know, D DL's daughter or sorry, DL rather is not the same type of woman as Oedipa, for example. Oedipa is not a a badass who can beat up her dad and anyone else's dad and your dad too. Um she's very timid but she is a woman who has the agency in that book to to make decisions and that is ultimately what is threatening to to a lot of the men around her that she is trying to escape from in that book is the fact that she can choose to go a different direction and in this book you have this person's entire worldview entire understanding threatened by the fact that his daughter simply chose to become stronger than him you know, it, it, it's it's an interesting concept in his books that I think I'll be curious to look for more examples of as we go along, because I think it's there. Um, and again, it's it's not something that is remarked upon often in, in, in criticism or, or writing about Pinchon, because it's much easier to make inverse complaints about how he does characterize certain other women in the books that he's written. Yeah, and I think there's even in in this book there's a great example of the the point you were just making that that he's not basically doing the oh they've lived through this hard thing and now they are going to kill the bad men mm-hmm. the because look at Sasha Sasha is n- not quite as badass as Dio but Sasha is awesome and Sasha yeah. had like a Sure, she had a, a, you know, some people might call it a rough childhood, but it wasn't rough because her father was abusive. It was rough because, like, the world is tough and sometimes families go without food sometimes. Mm-hmm. Like, she she is almost as badass as DL. She's not as cool. She doesn't do ninja stuff, but she is intense and determined and autonomous and believable. And she doesn't have any of that background really she's just a normal person compared to dl mm-hmm. very and true in, in between you have like frenesi who is you know probably the most damnable character in the book but she is also not like weak no she's just no wrong sometimes no she's just misguided yeah. yeah but she she makes all of her decisions very confidently <laughs> yep and for not yeah bad reasons most of the time no some of them genuinely not but yeah i I mean and also like it isn't a surprise that she ended up that way like she her entire life ahead of herself was cut short by the pregnancy and you know that's going to reshape the way that you go about your life if she doesn't get pregnant she doesn't end up married to zoid she doesn't end up you know coming across the 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 federal involvement that led to who she ran off with she doesn't end up in witness protection she doesn't like 
that yeah. one situation changed everything. So like, of course, you know, she's, she's misguided. Like she, she is effectively stuck at, you know, age 22 or whatever. Right. From yeah. the standpoint of the last time that, you know, she made a choice to, to carry that child to term. And now she's managed to still be able to commit herself to, to the agency she is capable of in the situation that she's in. Um, and that doesn't get in the way of, of her desire to still, you know, commit to, to doing everything else that, that someone in her position might want to do from a standpoint of, of being married or having children. Um, she's an incredibly complex character and becomes that way in two chapters. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have another, you know, counterexample is a crappy way to frame it. It's not how I want to. But you, you have Norlene in this chapter who is framed at the beginning quite detestably. And it's because you're looking at it from the perspective of DL as a young teenager. And the, the way that you're walked through her learning to understand her mother, the mm-hmm. way that you're walked through learning that, like, essentially, Norlene, in her own way, was taking revenge on the man who was hurting her. Mm-hmm. It, whether or not it's enough or, um, a, a, you know, counterforce adjacent way however you want to talk about it you know but she was trying she was doing what she believed even though yeah. she was under his thumb yeah absolutely yeah just a lot of a lot of food for thought that i would encourage our listeners to sit on and and yeah. think about because i feel like again like i like i said when we started talking about this i just I can understand some of the criticism, absolutely, especially from from a younger Pinchon. Um, but it 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 was never so bad that it was clearly like a personality defect or like something to to genuinely be concerned about when it comes to to what his real life views on women might have been. And you just have to, like most things in his novels, you just have to work a bit harder to understand the full context of what of what he's doing and setting up for the reader. He does. A tremendous amount of world building and story crafting in very few words. Yeah. Uh, Cody, you had a question for the group in your notes here about. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think this kind of, I think, ties back to you could really loop it back to Mason and Dixon with with Jang. Um, but I think there's a, a certain spiritualism that's a, that's applied not just in this book, but I think in general too, with, with martial arts, um, or at least certain branches of it, I think have more spiritualism involved in them. Um, and I was just curious if you guys had an opinion on the way that that's kind of tackled in here is, you know, we're kind of presented with the idea of there being a lot of spiritualism built into the, uh, the martial arts specifically that, that DL, um, gets into. Um, I'm just kind of curious how, how y'all, come to that um you know as far as do you does does that tenant like kind of fit does it you know is is there an inherent uh benefit to adding that spiritual layer to something like that does anyone else here have martial arts experience or just me i, I only do through my son it. yeah I did, I did kung fu when i was young young enough to like internalize all the spiritual stuff but to not actually have any skills <laughs> For some reason, whenever it says kung fu specifically, I just my brain immediately thinks that that's not a real thing, and that it's well, yeah. just, <laughs> it's just it's, a thing in movies. Well, it it, it isn't like kung kung fu is like a it, 
it's a broad set of things. It's a catch-all, I think. Really. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, uh, it's I, an I, absurd term. Yeah, I. I mean, it's just that nobody knows what wushu is. Um, <laughs> and I mean, wushu for anybody who doesn't know is kung fu as an art form. It, it is entirely centered on the spiritual aspect of those things. It it, it is essentially like high speed tai chi. Sounds interesting. But um, I'll I'll say I th- I think that there is a lot of spirituality inherent to martial arts as they are seriously practiced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's I think that's the defining situ- uh, defining thing there. Yeah, and I think in this book, it's I think he's mostly playing with tropes. Yes. I, yeah. yeah. I, I don't get the sense that Pinchon is trying to utilize the the martial arts as anything other than an icon of some form of mind-body unification and uh, a, a, a Deleuzian kind of uh, counterculture sense regarding, like, you know, relation to one's own body. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I mean, I, so I did Taekwondo for a really long time. Um, and then, like, later in life, I just did some, like, boxing so not like a traditional martial art at all but i did do taekwondo for a while i i think it the answer would depend upon what the end goal is or like what the direction you're going in because yes i think if you're taking it very seriously there is like a whole with taekwondo it's more of a philosophy i would say than a religion or a spiritual aspect but those those things can certainly provide a lot of guidance to your life that then creates a more holistic approach to what you're doing physically so i think that there absolutely can be a benefit there if it's something that you're looking for um i would say will's pretty much much on the the money as far as why it's present in this book um but it it is certainly a thing with real life practitioners of, of martial arts that if they choose to to be that invested in it and they choose to kind of give themselves over to that art form then yeah it would certainly i think reciprocate with um with an increased capacity or capability there yeah fundamental to most of the traditional martial arts uh asian as the ones we've talked about uh or otherwise almost all traditional martial arts have a a very stringent focus on your mindset Mm -hmm. it it might not be spiritual per se but it, it is it is as much meditation as it is like practicing how to punch yeah because the the whole for anybody who's not aware that whole uh, karate and kung fu trick of like punching through boards and stuff, it's not a matter of being strong. It's a matter of learning how to overcome your impulses to pull a punch. Because you can mm-hmm. punch through wood. It's not that. It's not that hard. It was Especially not brick. those boards. Yeah. 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 They're like yeah. one inch pine boards usually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You you can just do it. Anybody can just do it. Get really drunk and try. You will succeed. But it's about being able to do that in a calm and sober state of mind, not not acting on fear, not acting on um, impulse, but instead retreating to your basic understanding of yourself and the world around you rather than reacting. Yeah. But I don't uh, think he's getting into that. <laughs> Some real-life context. Yeah. Um. Do we have any other thoughts that we want to add before we we ra- we wrap up and move on to funny parts? I think we've pretty well covered everything. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, 
so that being that being said uh before we 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 firmly move on the last thing i was going to mention is uh in line with the the feminist theory you had a note about this uh, quote in here too cody which i appreciate because i had i had bookmarked this quote um i'm just going to read out this quote from page 128 just as a as a final note on on Pinchon's treatment of women because this is something that i don't think most men who are writing women as objects of exploitation or somehow less than would come up with this idea um where it says, as days and weeks passed, DL found herself entering into a system of heresies about the human body. In an interview with Agro World, there it is again, years later, she spoke of her time with Inishiro Sensei as returning to herself, reclaiming her body, which they always like to brainwash you about. Like, they know it better, trying to keep you as spaced away from it as they can. Maybe they think people are easier to control that way. The schoolroom line was, you'll never know enough about your body to take responsibility for it, so better just hand it over to those who are qualified. Doctors and lab technicians and, by extension, coaches, employers, boys with hard-ons, so forth, alarmed, not to mention pissed off. DL reached the radical conclusion that her body belonged to herself. That was back when she was still thinking about ninjutsu. After a few years, she didn't think so much about what she'd just keep working on every day. Finding the time and space often at high cost, but every day of her life. Like, that description has a... I don't know if you guys have read a lot of feminist literature, both fiction and nonfiction, but that paragraph has so many hallmarks of what a lot of, like, truly feminist work from a standpoint of the end goal of writing this this piece of work is to expand the thought of feminism or, or prompt the thought uh, in a feminist direction out of the reader. It, it's it's very similar to what Pinchon is writing about the the reclamation of of your body as a woman the the people who you know especially in, in the wake of like second and third wave feminism the people who who may try to take away your body and your your autonomy over it it is such a perfect encapsulation of of the points that we were making earlier and how he is someone who clearly has read outside literature to to form that opinion and to to find a way to put it into his book in a way that synthesizes that the spirituality the martial arts the the growth of her character and all that it's just such a perfect way to to end off with her character and kind of preempt the ending of the chapter yeah and it so thank you first of all for taking my favorite quote um (laughs) but also uh but beyond that i think that um there, there was one thing that I, I held off on protesting because I don't think it's important to the point you were making. Mm-hmm. That I do think that um, V has a lot of scenes that do indicate a young man who has trouble with women on like a psychological level. I agree, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, I, I think that this paragraph, in a way, is is uh, you know maybe not an apology, but it can be read as sort of a response to his own writing in uh, the mm-hmm. nose job chapter, for example. Mm-hmm. But I, I just think that it's such a, it is such a good paragraph because it, you're completely right. It's, it is so tied into so many different forms of feminist thought looped together. But it it does extend beyond that too for anybody who's uh, currently rolling their eyes and also probably thought that they don't know any horrible abusive men in their life. <laughs> um, it, it, these things apply to men too, uh-huh. and the fact yeah. that this is feminist comes down to the the realization that 
that's taken for granted to the extent that it's it's erased for men right. and for women it's denied outright and th this paragraph really does tie those things together in a very direct way i would even just say as someone lives in the part of the country that i live in <laughs> The sentence, the schoolroom line was, you'll never know enough about your body to take responsibility for it, so better just hand it over to those who are qualified. That was 33 years ago, and boy, does that shit still ring true. Because this, yeah. I mean, and we just, Texas just had a, a woman challenge the abortion ban, and they shot that down. Because, you know, a bunch of old white dudes know better than a woman does about how to handle her body. Yeah. Pretty, pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> um, so, lightening the mood, did we have any funny parts we wanted to go go over that we didn't already go over as we went through? Uh, we kind of already touched on mine. I mean, we went over a bunch of them. Everything in Chapter 7 was pretty hilarious. But um, the specifically the line, we're notorious here for having the worst food in the seminar-providing community. <laughs> might be the most like simultaneously 80s and Californian thing possible to say because you know, we kind of talked about earlier how there was that commodification of everything that started taking place around this time but then you also had the business of making businesses businesses of like right, yeah. what, what if we took a seminar and we made that a business but not only that like we need a place to have these business businesses so we'll put a we'll make a whole building for these business businesses and we can sell and coffee yeah, like, yeah, we could sell coffee and everyone can <laughs> sit on shitty plastic chairs and talk about how much money they're going to make. Like, it ju I ju that just, that killed me. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it's basically ghost kitchens, but before ghost kitchens were a thing. <laughs> One of the most absurd inventions of the modern era. Um, my funny part that I would add is what the names all of the vomitones gave themselves, like the pseudonyms that they were going God, by. Yeah, meat hook. Yeah, I yeah. wish that I wish that all of those were in like one quote for me to read out, but they're they're they're, they're interspersed through. Yeah, um, yeah, that 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 made me laugh every time he dropped another one of those. Um, in addition to <laughs> as the ex mobster is strangling the guy, he then also says like. Imper what does he say? I, I forgot the the uh, like specific crime, but his response is that can land you in small claims court. Yeah. Yep. In, yeah. In, instead <laughs> of like obviously th that can land you sleeping with the fishes or something like that. Just uh, it's just yeah the whole depiction of these mobsters as as ailing no longer criminals is so funny. They don't want to bring me back in. <laughs> Uh, my 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 favorite comedic moment. There was there's probably something in the DL backstory chapter. It is so dense that I, I can't mm -hmm. go back and look for it. Um, but specifically, kind of in the middle of or near near the okay again. I'm in the ebook version, so I don't know where this is compared to everyone else. But uh, after the vomitones arrive, uh, you have this moment where. Um, Billy Barf is doing his Italian accent. Mm -hmm. Though Ralph Jr. had talked Californian all his life, had only taken it for some kind of speech impediment. 
You guys have done this before, right? He kept asking as they offloaded their instruments, amps, and digital interfaces and proceeded down to a huge airy tent at the edge of the small metal, meadow. Just the, the fact that he... I, the fact that he keeps asking it. You guys have done this before, right? You know it's, not doing, your, right? it's not your wedding. You're not paying for it. Why are you so nosy about this? <laughs> They're a band. They're bringing equipment out. What do you mean you guys have done this before, right? <laughs> like, and it, obviously he's correct in his suspicions, but it, there's no reason for it at this point. Yeah. Just some very, very uh, anxious, very privileged air energy. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you never know. It apparently took them two days to get to the to the wedding venue. Maybe some crazy stuff happened that shook That's the true, confidence. Yeah. <laughs> Very possible. Which, I mean, I feel like what everyone should do is just read that quote that it took two days. Then go read, like, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And then come back and pick up where you left off. Because <laughs> I feel like something insane must have happened during those two days. But we'll never know. Uh, Cody, do you want to take us into quotes? Yeah. So I, I was going to initially choose the, uh, that last section that we read. Um, but I kind of figured someone else was going to take that. So I opted not to. So in mm. <laughs> in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't. Um, I had a few that I was going to pick from. I, I really loved the description of, uh, Ralph coming out of the pool and his clothes. <laughs> um, so I almost picked that one. Uh, and I did really, really like the end of chapter seven when it talks about Furness or DL driving off and the, the kind of musicality of her car. But ultimately, I'm going with um, when Prairie is uh, on the computer um, and and searching through the or starting to search through the the photographs. Uh, so it's on page one fourteen. Um, so into it, and then on Prairie followed a girl in a haunted mansion, led room to room, sheet to sheet, by the peripheral whiteness the earnest whisper of her mother's ghost. She already knew about how literal computers can be. Even spaces between characters mattered. She had wondered if ghosts were only literal in the same way. Could a ghost think for herself, or was she responsive totally to the needs of the still living? Needs like keystrokes entered into her world, lines of sorrow, loss, justice denied. But to be of any use, to be real, a ghost would have to be more than only that kind of elaborate pretending. I just... There's there are some really knockout sections in here as far as just the general prose, and I think that's one of them. Um, I just I, that imagery is just beautiful. Yeah, I agree completely. Will, what about you? I am indeed making you not go last. I was just about to say. No, I'm just I'm taking just paged away for some reason when I just found a section. So give me a give me a moment. <laughs> sure thing, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Why do I do this to myself? I don't know. Cody liked that one, though. From the mess hall next door, an ambiguous murmuring, part hunger, part apprehension, had grown in volume. Prairie grabbed a kettle of institutional tomato soup, carried it on in, and for the next couple of hours, she also schlepped racks of newly washed cups and dishes in and bust dirty dishes out, cleaned off tabletops, poured coffee, going from one set of chores to another as they arose, sensing partial vacuums and flowing there to fill them, Unable to help noticing that people were talking or taking seconds on the spinach casserole and the bologna, too. Later, she scrubbed out pots and pans and helped put stuff away and swab down the stone floor of the kitchen and scullery. By the time she got upstairs to the Ninjet Terminal Center and found out how to log in, the midsummer sunset had come and gone, and the sounds of an evening Kodo workshop mixed with the good nights 
of courtyard birds. And that's, you know, there's not much depth to it, except that I think it's it's great whenever an author decides to take what is usually just yada yada away mm-hmm. and makes it the centerpiece for a moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's another one of those transitional elements of that chapter that I really loved. Um, my quote comes from chapter 8. Um, in my edition, it is on page 116. Um, and it's from the description of when Frenessi and uh, DL met one another. What she found was Frenessi, who'd been out with her camera in a bag full of bootlegged eco stocks since dawn, finally ending up on Telegraph Avenue, filming a skirmish line of paramilitary coming up the street in riot gear, carrying small and, she hoped, only firing rubber bullet-firing rifles. Last time, she looked she'd been at the front edge of a crowd who were slowly retreating from the campus, trashing what they could as they went. When the film roll ended and she came up out of safety of her viewfinder, Fernessi was alone, halfway between the people and the police with no side street handy to go dodging down. Hmm. Shop doors were all secured with chain. Windows shuttered over with heavy plywood. Her next step would have been just to go ahead and change rolls. Get some more footage, but to go rooting around in her bag right now could only be taken as a threat by the boys in the khaki, who'd come close enough that even above the lingering, nose-wrenching ground note of tear gas, she could still begin to smell them. The aftershave, the gunmetal in the sun, the new-issue uniforms whose armpits by now are musky with fear. Oh, I need Superman, she prayed, Tarzan on that vine. The basic stone bowel flash had come and gone about the time D.L. showed up, all in black, including helmet and face shield, riding her esteemed and bad red and silver check motorcycle, the Che Zed. Overdesigned in every part, up onto which she gathered Fernessi out of danger, camera, miniskirt, equipment bags and all, and carried her away. Skidding among piles of street debris and paper fires, over crumpled auto glass, trying not to hit anybody lying on the pavement, up onto some sidewalk and around the corner at last and down the long hillside to the bay, flashing in late sun, they escaped in a snarling dream rush of speed and scent. With her bare thighs, Fernessi gripped the leather hips of her benefactor, finding that she'd also pressed her face against the fragrant leather back. She never thought it might be a woman she hugged this way. I love that quote for a ton of reasons. Um, one, I, I think the, the place setting for the, the scene as it unfolds is amazing from a standpoint of describing, like, all of the descriptive words that he uses to describe the police and like what the the day was from a temperature and an environment perspective. And then finally, um, when the two of them sort of get enmeshed when, when DL comes in and, and picks her up that description of, uh, almost potentially like a, Oh, am I attracted to this woman? Like awakening in frenzy, frenzy, like right at that moment is, is just such descriptive prose the whole way through. Like, the way that the scene un- unfolds, the way that um, it introduces these characters to one another, and just each detail is is so perfect. Um, and I'd also, I'd also just love to see what that relationship would have been like if, it, if, if that was indeed where it was headed. Um, yeah, I, I love that quote very much. Yeah, it was a contender. It's pretty awesome. That's it a good is. one. It really is. Uh, all right. So what about uh, most pinch on part of the chapter? 
I'm saying naming the wedding fake book after obscure French postmodernist philosophers. Um, <laughs> that shit's like that's such a deep cut. Yeah, they are. They are not popular postmodern philosophers. And Will, what about you? Most pinch on part. I'm actually struggling to to choose one. Um, yeah, I did too. I've I've been trying to figure it out, and I was hoping that you know Cody wouldn't do what he just did. So that I wouldn't have to think about it. There's a lot of theft all over the place in this episode. A ton of it theft. It really is. It's amazing we trust each other at all. <laughs> well, I don't know. Apparently your kids are going to be at war with me and Brett's kids, so... Well, you can have trust, despite war. I suppose that's fair. But I know that in the future you will be an enemy of both mine and Brett's in some <laughs> respect. <laughs> it's, it, it, look, as long as we know where we're going... End of sentence. <laughs> uh, it might, I might, I might go with the the UBI line. That in isolation is just incredibly Pinchonian. Because mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you don't need to specify that cream of mushroom soup is universal. You don't need <laughs> to come up with the, this weird, stupid, jargony name for it. It doesn't help anything except that it's it's really funny. It is. It is indeed. Um, I, I would definitely say that my most pinch on part of the chapter would be related to to what Will said in that it's just it's the appearance of more food just described the way that it is. Um, <laughs> that's just a very unique quirk of of Pinchon's writing as a whole. Um, I really want to know what pizza did to him, man. Yeah, because between a, there's a relationship there <laughs> there's something's going on like between the pizza and mason and dixon the pizza and this and then the pizza and inherent vice like uh-huh. there's he's got something something's going on between pinch on and pizza was there pizza stuff in in bleeding edge i don't remember offhand if there was uh there might be I th- mm. well, it's we'll in new it's there. in new york so like uh, yeah. if we, if it's ripe for material yeah <laughs> So we did have a couple of listener questions and comments. Um, two of you reached out on Instagram, which was great. Uh, Cody, do you want to read the first Instagram message that Luke uh, sent to us from Matt? Yeah. Uh, so this is from Matt, um, and it says, Hey, y'all, just wanted to say how much I love and appreciate this podcast. I've been going through Pinchon's books this year and found y'all right when I was starting Mason and Dixon, which will be the last on my list. The podcast is such a great guide, and I've gotten so much more out of the book from hearing your discussions. I was desperately searching for good podcasts on Pinchon when I started reading his work, and all I could find was people talking about how much they hated it, part of why we started this show. Uh, It's a dream come true to find a podcast where people engage with it seriously and mine it for meaning as well as y'all do. I also really enjoyed your rant about I-35. Yeah, uh, I, I live in DFW, so I deal with it on a daily basis. I'm sorry, man. Uh, keep up the great work. Happy holidays. Thank you, Matt. Uh, that, uh, we really appreciate that. Yeah, we uh, this show was formed out of a, a lack of Penchon podcasts that um, were uh, not dunking on his work and also weren't specifically about gravity's rainbow and only gravity's mm-hmm. rainbow and a, a very surface level overview of it from any number of podcasts. And, you know, I haven't listened to all of them, but we wanted to do something that was, um, you know, not necessarily scholarly, but just brought something to the table to, to 
help people read these books and, and to kind of get something out of it. So I'm, I'm glad that you found us and, and we're happy to have you as a listener and we look forward to uh, keeping going on with this thing. Yeah. I don't know what other shape our podcast really could have taken place. Cause when me and Cody were originally talking about what it should be, this was really, you know, what the show ended up being really was the only idea either of us had <laughs> as far yeah. as, as far yeah. as how to go about doing it. Um, and it, it, it obviously did, come out of a lack of something like this being available um and honestly to 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 i believe i i mentioned this off recording when luke was doing his bonus episode but the format for this podcast is really inspired by a show called rereading wolf um that was a show that i was listening to at the time when me and cody were talking about potentially putting the show together and I thought to myself, you know, that's a great show for that author, but I think that a similar show for Pinchon would be really necessary, um, and really necessary for a lot more authors who work whose works tend to be esoteric or a bit more difficult to to decipher out. So I know that we're all just excited to have an excuse to talk about Pinchon weekly. Yeah. That's um, the main that's the main thing is I just <laughs> like having people I can talk about Pinchon with. Yeah. Um so I, I I think all of us are are pretty well in this to 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 continue providing these discussions for everyone, especially if the response continues to be what it has been. Yeah, we we're we are having fun, just in case it isn't clear. This is not something we're doing for some long con. This is not something right. we're doing to to like feel smart about ourselves. We're all sitting around talking about one of our favorite authors because we like to dig through it and figure out what it means. Mm -hmm. And hopefully people listening to that can kind of use this as inspiration to do their own investigating because as much published stuff as there has been about Thomas Pynchon, there is, there is so much more to get out of every single one of his books than is published in some literary journal. And mm -hmm. just because you don't have experience reading literature with the big L doesn't mean you can't have <laughs> fun trying to figure out what the hell he's saying in a really obscure passage. It's just fun. Yeah. It's yeah. there. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, I don't think any of us are trying to, you know, present this as, you know, any kind of, um, you know, hyper researched or, or anything like that. Like, I, I take this stuff, you know, I just read it and I'm, you know, getting out of it, what I get out of it. I, I will dive into some things that I don't understand the the technicality of, but at the end of the day, like, I, I think all we're doing here is just talking about what we love about these books and, and, you know, what makes them work on, on a, on a deeper level than just, you know, a surface level glossing. But I think the more we dive into it and the more we talk to each other about it, you know, it opens up different avenues that we might not have, of uh, scene when we were reading it and and opens up new doors for us to to interpret it in different ways yeah could not have said that better myself um will do you want to read the second thing we got from instagram that luke sent us sure the fine I, I was i was getting mentally prepared to read our first one star review but sure oh <laughs> i mean if if you'd rather read that then you're more than welcome i'll switch with you <laughs> no this is fine i already have the have the post open okay so the one star review, did you need to have that open? Because I, I memorized that. <laughs> I have a tattoo. Uh, no, the, the, ins, the second Instagram post. Uh, from Anarcho Succubus on Instagram. 
currently on my first reread of a Pynchon novel, thanks to at mapping this podcast as a reading group. Can't recommend enough. My first read, I focused on the heartbreaking narrative and beautiful prose of FBI informants and hippie radicals reckoning with their past failures and betrayals. Now in my second read, and having read most of Pynchon, I see the text more as a meta-commentary by Pynchon himself on how people wanted him to return to those hippie gravity's rainbow days, which at that point of post-Nixon and post-Reagan were impossible to return to, and what it means to evolve as an artist, writer, and radical. And I, you know, I can't say you're wrong. No. Legally, I have a contract. <laughs> but also, uh, no, I, th- I think that both of those interpretations are as valid as, or not valid, but as important as one another when you're reading this book. Mm-hmm. I think it's really fun how much of this book is mocking critics of his, his own work. Yeah, I think that's one of the the big, I mean, for me at least, it's it's one of the biggest things about Pinchon that I, that makes me enjoy reading his books is there there is not one singular way in which it can be interpreted. I think there are people who will make the argument that there is a right or wrong uh, interpretation of it. I I don't think that's the case. I think that there are there's so much happening in all of these books that it opens itself up to a lot of different interpretations. Yeah, absolutely, and it there's no. There's nothing to indicate that Thomas Pynchon ever said or desired for there to be one interpretation of yeah. the work. I, yeah. I I firmly believe that he would be in opposition to that as a concept. Well, as Will said, we got our first one-star review. Um, this comes <laughs> this comes from Apple Podcasts, uh, courtesy of username 1988pens. Or maybe 1,988 pens. Too many pens. Uh, Or maybe 1,988 pens. Or 1,988 pens. Um, However, your name is is meant to be pronounced. Uh, The title of this review is NVM. And the text of this review is NVM. (laughs) Um, I mean, Nevermind is a perfectly good grunge album from the 1990s, but I'm yeah, um, not sure what that does to relate to Vineland. I I have this simple request. Whoever this this listener is, I don't know if this was yeah. I don't know if this was a a sly attempt to uh, you know lower our rate. If you're from a a some community that's trying to just bring us down like the man that didn't work on that level. I I have lost. Yeah. I have lost sleep because I don't understand what this means. Like there needs to be more. (laughs) I'm not upset that you don't like the show. That's fine. Like this, obviously like we are not going to appeal to everybody, but I just want more, please. Like, I don't know. Like, never mind what, like, never mind us as a sh- like i don't know i don't know if you could like expound on on what it is i that would be cool i guess we're just so we're just that superfluous really that's what i maybe. interpreted as <laughs> yeah i have maybe. to appreciate the brevity of it at least yeah this person you know they they say what they mean and then they move they on. didn't have time to write out a whole yeah there's no time yeah. for that the the definition of loquacious should be the opposite of 1988 pens. <laughs> um, so that is all of the communication we've gotten from you guys. Uh, please, if you have any desire to write into the show, um, 
our our email is always in the show description but if for some reason you don't have access to that our email address is mapping the zone pod at gmail.com um i think it's been a couple of weeks since we we actually verbally said that um Probably has, yeah. our twitter is pinch on pod um if you go to to x.com um uh, no and <laughs> and put in pinch on pod that you'll find us there uh, and we are we are on Instagram as well at Mapping the Zone podcast. Um, we, we've we've all really loved getting to hear from a few more of our listeners. This this sort of I don't know what do we would call this season or book reading or yeah um, this, this book yeah this time through it's been nice to have the additional input from from our listeners. So please please keep it coming. Doesn't have to be direct questions, although we love those. Um, anything. It just be three letters. Yeah. You could, you could uh, take after 1988 pens. Uh, I do want to add before we go. Um, yes. We had some pretty cool news. Brett, uh, Brett Beeble, our, our friend uh, who helped us through Mason and Dixon, um, as we mentioned when we were doing those episodes, has a companion book coming out uh, for Mason and Dixon, and the pre orders are finally up for that. Um, so I will put a link to the uh, pre order website in the show notes. Um, I don't know if it is still happening, but um, by the actually, yeah, mm, hold on. Before I say anything, I may need to edit myself out. You have until tomorrow, if you're listening to this the day this comes out, uh, December 16th is the cutoff. There is a code to get 50% off the book. Uh, I will include that in the show notes as well, but it is 08 Falls L F A L L S L, 50% off. It's a good deal. Uh, I already ordered my copy. I'm really looking forward to it. It comes out in June. Um, so please uh, support Brett and, and his book. Uh, Brett was uh, supremely helpful for us and, and is just a great person. We had a great time talking to him. Um, and, and we wish him all the best and, and the best of luck with his book. Did you pre-order the hardcover or the, uh, the no. paperback? paperback. That's 50% off, Cody. <laughs> I know, but <laughs> you can't afford to go not to take those savings. Exactly. Yeah. Most of my books are paperback, so I try to stick with that. Yeah, but just think what the first edition hardcover copy of a Mason and Dixon companion will be it's worth true. in 70 years. That's Published true. by the University of Georgia Press. I have to get an autograph. I feel like that's doable. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Anyways, uh, yeah, go buy it. Brett was Brett's great, and we Brett we, is great. We love you. Very Brett. fond of him. Thank you, Brett. Uh, next week we will be back with a discussion on just chapter nine. So if you're reading along with us, just read chapter nine. It's Don't read nine and ten. It's a long chapter. That is why it gets its own episode. Um, as always, thank you so much for listening. My name is Kate. My name is Cody. And I am Will. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Never mind. <laughs> that also took me back because my mom used to have a Trans Am back in the day. I'm, the only Which story I have like that is my mom was picked up to go to prom in a Trans Am. Oh, see, my when my parents were in high school, my dad had a a 
71 Cuda, whatever the car Nash Bridges drove was, that's what he had. So mm. much louder than a Trans Am. But the fact that my mom, my mom who grew up in high school as a uh, John Denver loving hippie, essentially um, had a Trans Am when I was in elementary school, uh, still blows my mind. Hey, the but, love of that Phoenix, uh, you know, that doesn't miss anybody. Uh, yeah. You, you still see them all over the place in Albuquerque. Because, oh, they're all over San Antonio. Yeah, it's, it's really great. Yeah. Low humidity over here. And then I guess they just drive them over to Texas. Huh. Do you know why it's such a big deal over there? I don't know why it is here. It might have to do with street racing. Um, but I don't know. I don't know enough about cars to really know that. I, I have no clue. I think they're just like an incredibly well designed from an aesthetic perspective car. Probably. Yeah. Like, mm. I mean, you, you can't think of any that are much more iconic. If we have any gearheads in the audience who know the answer to this, like why those cars are so popular still, I would what? really genuinely like to know. Well, specifically in Phoenix and in Texas. apparently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. so it, in the Southwest it's because there's no humidity here. And so there are classic cars all over the place. No, none, nothing dies here. Yeah, you don't worry about it. Yeah. San Antonio, it's a mystery. A lot of things in San Antonio are a mystery, but that's another podcast. (laughs) Yep, very much so. Yeah. The thing is, though, like, I've known people who had zero, uh, like, cooking lessons at any point in their life. And so it's, like, watching them struggle to like make food when they try to make like i lived with a guy who did this and it like it was always fascinating to try to like watch him make stuff or attempt to make stuff and he but he refused help like he was so he had this level of pride of like i i can figure it out and i was always like dude get a cookbook like watch something online like i don't like there are ways to learn how to do this but he was so steadfast <laughs> in doing it that he just like it always became just a mess and he would get frustrated just go back into his room so it's, you know, I don't know. I've seen people make weird things. I've seen people do weird mistakes cooking mm-hmm. that you shouldn't really think would happen, but they do. Way of the world. You know, I will say, I think that there's a case to be made that my father was suffering from some kind of uh, indefinite culinary penance because he had this concept in his head that he would make the best eggs he would ever make in his life if he separated the egg whites from the egg yolks and then beat the egg whites into like a loose meringue basically right and then folding that back in with the egg yolks and then cooking all of that together he had this like vision for either an omelet or just making the eggs that would make them really fluffy and nice and like i can understand the logic he was applying right he never had the dedication to beat the egg whites into an actual, like, nearing a meringue consistency. Oh, did it just get to that foam level? Yeah, all he oh, would do, boy. all he would do, is use a whisk until it reached the that that foam level, and then he would he would fold that into his egg yolks, and then try and cook it that way, and then he would get unreasonably upset every <laughs> single time when it did not come out the way that he was expecting. Oh, and I would man. I would tell him all the time, Dad, you just have to beat them to I can show you. And he's like, No, 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 I gotta get this right in my head. 
and he just couldn't he could never get there i i think this is where he needs to go to That's, to maybe yeah. find some rehabilitation so okay did you mind clarifying did he break the egg yolks yeah so because okay. i'm imagining like the horror story of someone like making these weird fried eggs that are entirely <laughs> lace <laughs> yeah so he would he would basically have two bowls right he would he would crack the egg open he'd separate the egg whites into one bowl and then he'd drop the egg yolks in the other he'd do this for however many eggs he was making and then he would beat the egg yolks together and then he would attempt to beat the egg whites in the separate bowl into into something with a structure and just never never had the dedication to get there i that's rough i mean it does <laughs> literally sound like some form of penance <laughs> yeah. it really does yeah i'll you know and it's again it comes down to that like refusal to to accept help like right. i think that's 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 the the kind of breaking point for for someone having to go to this indefinite culinary penance i have just to tell a quick story i worked with a uh, with a girl uh when i worked at the record store here in town who would constantly complain about the coffee in the coffee machine and we had a little like Mr. Coffee kind of thing. And every time she opened the store, she would complain about how the coffee was really weak. It's just, it doesn't taste it, There's no flavor, blah, blah, blah. So finally, one of the, the quote unquote corporate people who like worked at the main office came in and I walked into the store. She's like almost in tears. And I was like, what's up? She's like the coffee that I can't remember her name now that she keeps complaining about. I'm like, yeah, She's been putting whole coffee beans in the machine and just running hot water over it. Oh, Lord. Yeah. Routinely. Like, this happened at <laughs> least for two or three weeks. Look, in, in the interest of combating Cody's uh, mind virus, you can learn how to cook. You can. It's, mm -hmm. it's possible. You can get better. You can figure out how to grind coffee. These things are all within your fingertips. There are so many tools out there now. There are several, so many. several shows on Food Network that help you for this. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to go through penance. I should have to. I should rephrase what I said. Earlier. Like you, you don't have to become like a high end Gordon Ramsay kind of thing. You can just be good with, at cooking at home. And there's so many cool tools out there to, to be better at it. And cooking is fun. Yeah, perhaps that's just something I've missed out on living in the Midwest my whole life. Could be, yeah. Come to South Texas um, and get your vegetables in blocks. Oh yeah, big, big, big fan. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll trade you for a bag of milk. We have that up here. We have that down here too. Nice. <laughs> I don't Thankfully, know who came our, up with that our concept. Milk is not in bags here. I'm safe from the monstrosity. It's a, it's an experience, man. It's cheaper. Yeah. You're acting like it's powdered milk, Will. It's not powdered milk, it's just it's milk in a bag. The liquids milk, should dude. be in containers, and containers container. should not yeah, conform it, to the shape of the liquid. You buy a container to put the bag in, too. Yeah. It's sitting in the in the in the fake container. It's like a for too long. 
it's absorbing it's the hard part because we had them in elementary school the hard part was putting the straw in them you had to like hold it down like it was some <laughs> kind of a beast that you were trying to stab to death and then you would just try to hope you got the angle right and you weren't pushing too hard oh man it was a real science yeah i think will's in the wrong on this one um and has have i either of you had a spinach casserole with cheese in it because i haven't and that doesn't sound good i can't I have. say that i have okay that's nice um <laughs> good for you. i'm glad i'm, I'm serious that's not, i'm glad that it's nice i was, I've, I was worried I, i've had it two different ways um one where it was like shredded cheese from a bag that was mixed in with all of the other ingredients and then one where the cheese was sprinkled over the top and then it was like put underneath a broiler so the cheese layer melted on the top hmm. so I, yeah I've, I've had it prepared both ways it doesn't sound bad it's not at least i don't i don't remember tasting it being like oh take that shit home like <laughs> i don't remember having a visceral reaction we can probably we can probably trust your memory then if, if you don't remember vomiting immediately mm-hmm. no i've only ever done that once and it was on my babysitter's table when she invited my family over for dinner. It's always at the <laughs> most opportune time. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thus began my long, uh, my long injurious list of, am I allergic to mushrooms? Question mark. That has lasted me through my entire life. I have no idea if I am or not. Go That's get tested. Not a fun one. That's nice. Yes. Yeah. Don't want to find out the hard way. That's for sure. <clears throat> what would the hard way be? Dying. Anaphylaxis. Oh, yeah. sh- sure. That would yeah. count out my son is allergic to nuts. That's fair. 